You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, bringing class to trash since All right, everybody, welcome to the GGTMC. We are back and we are awake because I wouldn't say alive is the right word, but uh, yeah, but we are cognizant of the fact that we are here. (laughs) Yeah, I blink, therefore I am. Yeah, maybe I should have opened with flush. (laughs) Get us going a little bit more. (laughs) We'll play that later. Um, yes, we are back, and this week we are, uh, covering The Flesh Eaters from 1964, directed by Jack Curtis, and Flash Gordon from 1980, directed by Mike Hodges. Uh, who says, again, who says we're not a comic book show? Yeah, right? Dude, we got like a, we got a fucking lineup coming that's, uh, comic book heaven. Yeah, it's a comic book heavy. We are... We're covering all the stuff that comic book movies used to be. Uh, yeah. In some ways, I wish they still were. Um, That sounds like an old man, so I won't say that. That's what we're talking about this week. <laughs> uh, I want to give a shout out to a new podcast that's out there. It's called the Not A Bomb Podcast. It's a Troy, good friend Troy. He's a friend of the show. He's been around for a while. And um, a friend of his named Brad. I think they used to do a movie podcast called Movie Matchup. And uh, they do this show now called Not a Bomb, which is a kind of a cool concept. They take movies that uh, released uh, just one movie a week, and uh, it came out, and it bombed. Mm-hmm. And they kind of discuss should it have bombed or why it shouldn't have bombed. And okay, pretty simple concept, but it actually ends up being kind of this almost underdog mentality, which is kind of cool because, in a way... That's kind of what a lot of these, uh, you know, podcasts are that go back and look at old movies, you know, what went right, what went wrong. Why wasn't this appreciated then? Why is it appreciated now? Those kinds of things. So pretty good show. And I'm not just uh, giving them a little plug because I'm going to be on the show sometime soon. So <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'll give you guys an update on that. But I plan on talking about Speed Racer with them at some point. So uh, we'll see what, what, what transpires there. Hopefully that'll all work out. So give them just a little bit of a push. 
Not that they need it from us. I think they'll do just fine. Well, but that would fall in line with your uh, your chimpanzee story. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. I'll be able to pull that old uh, nugget out of the nugget. closet again. Yeah. <laughs> yep. yep. Just like that chimpanzee luckily had a diaper on that I shook hands with, or else he'd been pulling nuggets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was very aware of that the whole time I was shaking that hand. <laughs> well, anytime you're shaking hands with somebody wearing a diaper. It's, yeah, but he didn't. Yeah, it's something yeah. that you're very cognizant of. But he didn't know what I had going on with my hand, you know. Yeah, right. Gave him the old stink one, too, you know. I think, well, yeah, one of you was using sanitizer and the other one, not so much. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, yeah, check those guys out. And, um, yeah, I think that's all I got here at the beginning of the show. We are closely approaching. Uh, I finished a list the other day of movies that have been covered by the GGTMC, both Todd and I did. And, uh, you know, because we've reached the point, first of all, where we're old. Second of all, where we kind of need to know what we've covered and what we haven't, because I can't remember half the time. There's sometimes I'll pick, want to pick a movie and I have to Google <laughs> if we've covered the movie or not, uh, which is a great, uh, a, I don't know if that's a compliment or a, a sad thing. It's a little bit of both. Uh, but then I think about the fact that we're approaching the probably the 1,000th film covered on the show. Uh, yeah, we're in the ballpark at this point, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's pretty crazy to think about that. It's one of those things where I would have guessed more, but then when I stop and think yeah. about it, it's it's still a ton. Um, and well, it's you would think that you would think that with 500 shows, mm-hmm. times two movies, that should be over a thousand. But at the same time, you got to remember that some of those were single. Uh, yeah. I mean, well, actually, a chunk of them were single things like Midnight Rides and all that with Will. Yep. Yeah, the math is kind of dodgy, but either way, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what we know is we're very close to that. So it'll be next couple weeks, probably. So we'll see what one thousand ends up being. But uh, we probably won't do anything celebrate celebration wise because we're just not we're not real good at that. But no. <laughs> we do got some fun stuff coming up. So. We'll see what we'll see what transpires there. Anyway, let's get into what we've been watching, Todd. What you been up to? Uh, nothing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No. Uh, so I did a, uh, a um, wild hair watch uh, off of the uh, the plex of uh, the boxer from the temple from 1979 uh, from John Law Ma. He was the director. Uh, this is an interesting but not really great Shaw Brothers uh, effort. Um, it's billed as a comedy, but there's nothing all that funny in this thing. Uh, well, uh, there's the, uh, the extensive, the extensive use of, um, like comedy music. Uh, and of course, you know, the finale is pretty, uh, is a pretty downbeat bloodbath. So that's, uh, that's funny stuff right there. Um, the main character is called crazy kid. Like literally he's called crazy. That's his name. Crazy kid all throughout the movie. Uh, and he's played by, um, and I'm going to probably mangle this name, but, uh, Eng Yoon Jun. And he, and most of the ancillary characters have a certain like Chinese comedy look to them that makes them look like cartoons. Uh, and I'm sure that, um, if you've ever seen, how uh, how Chinese uh, people, or I should say, movies did uh, did comedy uh, for a long time. There, you you'll kind of get what I'm going at here. Um, the story itself is not all that compelling, or even all that well played out. Uh, but the movie, I think, does come alive when uh, when Yoon Jun uh, struts his stuff. Um, this guy, he has 
or had. Uh, I don't know if he's if he's still around or if he's still working. Um, a very gymnastic or uh, acrobatic style, and the uh, the choreography that he displays on screen is really impressive. Um, it's kind of a shame that he never took off like some of the uh, some of the other Shaw Brothers uh, players. Um, but this is one of those things where you know you could do worse, you could do better. Um, so so there's that. Uh, I did a rewatch of, uh, Thor Ragnarok, speaking of comic book movies. Um, this one is, uh, it's very well written and I think, uh, it's incredibly entertaining, entertaining for its, uh, its humor, its action, uh, maybe more for its humor. Um, but it also has some, uh, emotional resonance and the, uh, the relationship between Thor and Hulk is, uh, is tons of fun. Um, it's, this is as much a Taika Waititi movie as any of his more independent films, I think. And I think that when, uh, when studios like Disney collaborate like this with unique filmmakers, uh, the results are usually quite good. Uh, the way I like to think of it is that, uh, the Archie Goodwin model of uh, film production, Archie Goodwin, for those of you who don't know, he was an editor. Um, he worked for a long time at, uh, at Marvel comics and his, uh, his general philosophy on things was you find people who can do the job and you hire them to do the job and then you let them go and you don't bother them. Um, and I think that, um, that's kind of the thing is that, you know, obviously, uh, when you get into making movies, it costs a hell of a lot more to make a movie than it does to make a comic book. Uh, so I'm sure that there's some, um, some, uh, wanting to keep your fingers in the pie as far as executives go, but that's not, uh, usually a, a good thing as far as being, uh, creative or anything like that. But regardless, uh, I like that the movie, um, it really amps up the, uh, the science fiction aspects of the Thor property while still keeping like the fable aspects working strong. Uh, and the, uh, the visual style of this thing is very directly indebted to Jack Kirby. So I like that a lot. Uh, and of course, Jeff Goldblum is outstandingly weird, uh, as the, uh, the grandmaster, or maybe just as Jeff Goldblum playing the grandmaster. Yeah. Um, and uh, Kate Blanchett is uh, is both really effective and and you know I'll be, I'll be perfectly blunt here uh, pretty damn hot uh, as Hella mm. uh, so that's uh, another one in the uh, the plus column uh, Mark Mothersbaugh there's a really great score it's really uh, synthy really heavy on the synth and uh, works wonders um, I mean yes it does have some of the more problematic aspects to plague all massive tentpole films uh, and you know the Marvel you know, movies, maybe most of all, you know, there's a, a huge over-reliance on CG, especially in stuff like the, uh, the, the massive armies of like faceless enemies that the characters have to burn through like shit through a tin horn. Um, but also I feel that, uh, mm, uh, this one works better than, than a lot of the others do. Uh, I also think that, uh, maybe they should have only used immigrant song one time in the movie rather than two. Uh, but that's, you know, what, yeah. what are you going to do? Yeah, yeah. Um, but the thing is that I, I enjoy the shit out of this one. It's easily the best of the Thor series thus far, uh, in my opinion. Mm. Uh, and I'm looking forward to uh, love and thunder. So, um, I went from that to a little movie called the trip to Greece. Uh, so this is, uh, one last time for Winterbottom, Coogan, and Bryden, as far as I know, anyway. Um, as far as they say, I, yes. What's that? As far as they say, yes. As far as they say, yeah. yeah. Exactly. I, haven't, I haven't seen this one yet. I am a fan of the other three. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've never seen the series of any of these movies. No, uh, I. and I, you know, I content myself by repeating that someday I will. But you know, <laughs> uh, but I still love. I love this little quadrilogy that they've made. Uh, it's as this one is as much fun and a bit squirmy uh, as anything this team's ever done. Um, you know, it's great watching these two guys who are just massive founts of useless information. And it's, it's an absolute joy watching them try to one up and, and constantly frustrate each other, <laughs> yeah. especially Coogan. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's, uh, there's also a heavy, uh, use of, uh, Philip Glass music in this, which is a plus for me. I love Philip Glass. Um, the movie, uh, as all of these before, it does take a hard emotional turn toward the end. Um, and as always, Winterbottom, you know, kind of plays both ends of this, uh, against the middle, uh, this emotional, uh, point, uh, and, you know, he's, he's frustrating the audience with a very abrupt ending, uh, but he's also very clearly showing, um, that people's life experiences are not only never the same, but never can be. Um, I don't know if this approach that, uh, he continually takes like this is brilliant or it's just trying to have one's cake and eat it too, but. Um, it does carry an appeal for me in terms of, you know, it, it just, uh, um, how should I say it? I, I respect that it's, it's as audacious as it is. Um, yeah. and I give Winterbottom a lot of credit for, you know, sticking to his guns in that regard. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, and had I, uh, you know, if I had the time, um, or someone wanted, you know, to pay me to, you know, unravel uh, Winterbottom further, uh, I'd be willing to, but you know. Uh, say lovey. Yeah. Um, if I was those three, so yeah. if I was those three guys, I'd just keep making those movies forever. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. How could you not? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, well, it's just it's funny because yeah. I I just love how they 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 go like yeah they they they're doing this with like deep emotional stuff that they'll just kind of like bring up and then drop and then they'll just have like extended scenes of them doing you know um, impressions which yeah. <laughs> I love when they when they try to do. Pacino in that because they're both horrible at it. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, I love it. I love the, uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm sure they whip it out again. Obviously they probably whip out the Michael Caine impersonations or the Connerys, but I love the Mick Jagger <laughs> impersonation. Both of them do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, I, they, they do that again in this one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's usually a hand clap involved or something. It's pretty great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, there is. Yeah, and it feels uh, it, one of the things I like about those movies too is it feels like real friendship. Like you know, the, it, it's yeah. it's loving but slightly competitive. And, oh yeah, uh, it's just interesting. Well, I love that, I love the Kukin really. He 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 absolutely plays to the uh, the whole uh, the whole I'm a cunt. Uh, yeah, persona that he's uh, he's gathered known? over the years. Yeah, that he's known for. Yeah, he can be a bit yeah. difficult. Evidently, he can be a bit difficult. So, mm-hmm. and uh, he kind of sticks to that persona here and there. It's, it's it's it is interesting. I, like I said, I haven't seen this one yet, but I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, no, it's. I mean, if you like the other ones, you'll like this one. Yeah, uh, there's no doubt, no doubt. Um, so yeah, there was that, and then I busted out the um, the Bloodthirsty trilogy set uh, from Arrow, uh, and dove into that over the week. Um, so the first one, the Vampire Doll. Uh, these are all uh, directed by a fellow by the name of Michio Yamamoto. Um, this first one, the Vampire Doll, it uh, it certainly trades on the the gothic atmosphere of the Universal and Hammer films that it's emulating. Uh, like the first scene is is set during a storm at like a lonely old mansion uh, with a, a hunched over mute servant uh, who, incidentally, this guy keeps showing up randomly to uh, to attack the protagonist. 
um, you know, just as an example. Uh, and I was watching this thing. I, I suspect that the location, the actual location that they use in the movie, because when you first see the uh, the building, uh, it's a miniature. But I think when they actually get get around to using an actual location, I'm I'm I suspect I'm pretty sure that this is the same location where the villainous uh, aliens hung out in uh, Terror of Mechagodzilla. I might be wrong. Um, but then uh, Yamamoto adds in things like um, uh, swing and rock music. Uh, his characters are not all star-crossed lovers like in the Universal movies and all that sort of thing. Um, plus, the vampires themselves have a look and a feel that's uh, it's partly. Um, it's partly like Japanese folklore. It's partly Barlow from Toby Hooper's uh, Salem's Lot. Uh, so the the creep factor goes up a bit uh, when you see them uh, show up on screen. You know they're not really they're not really sexy uh, like we're we're used to in the uh, in the West here. Um, that in mind, this particular uh, movie plays more like a ghost story than a vampire story. Um, it does have one of the better dummy scares scares, mind you, uh, in the history of cinema. Uh, and it has, uh, the bats <laughs> when they show up, um, on screen, they sound like macaws or something. The, uh, the sound effects that they use for them. I don't know why. Maybe the, the folks who made this have never, you know, seen a bat before. Might be a uh, Lucio, one, Lucio Fulci-esque but... thing type there. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. It's just like how spiders can rip a person apart in like 10 seconds flat. But, um, <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's a few things for lovers of cheese, uh, in this movie. Uh, there's also some, some fun gore, uh, and some fun, uh, makeup effects, but, uh, they don't really show up until pretty late in, um, the movie's a fairly slow burn. Uh, it's trying to build up dread rather than to, you know, set up, uh, for attacks or some such. Uh, so I could see this one not being everyone's taste, especially since it's so different to begin with. Uh, and you know, I think that it only gets more removed, uh, as the, uh, the movie goes on. Um, so it was, it was good. Uh, an interesting way to, uh, to kick off this, uh, this trilogy. And I, I, when I say trilogy, I mean, you got to remember that it's not like really a trilogy trilogy. Um, we're not following the same characters through all of it. We're not following them, you know, like we're not continuing a plot, uh, through all three of them. Uh, they're more like spiritual, uh, trilogy in that way. Um, which brings me to Lake of Dracula, uh, which is 1971, uh, and that's the, you know, obviously the second one. Um, and in this one, they, uh, Yamamoto actually brings in a vampire, uh, and his look, uh, and again, his, uh, I should say his look is uh, is quite striking. He's all he's all blue skin uh, and shiny gold eyes. This is the one that you've probably seen the most pictures of if you've uh, seen any pictures from the uh, the trilogy, um, and. I think that this may be the first and only vampire uh, to rock a white turtleneck. All right. Uh, I'm not sure on that one. I'd have mm. to do some digging. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. It's a bold statement. Yeah, right? Uh, well, in the, in, the, uh, in the third one, he's also wearing not only a turtleneck, but a cape and a scarf. Mm. So, man, there's some... Uh, there's some sartorial uh, choices that uh, <laughs> need some <laughs> yeah. need some uh, an eye brought upon them. Um, so yeah, this one is uh, this one is psychological in nature, kind of in a uh, "am I going insane" sort of way. Um, and this plays into the uh, the repressed memories that lie at the heart of the movie. Uh, the lake aspect uh, of Lake of Dracula never really comes into play. Like the vampire, who by the way is never explicitly named Dracula. 
uh, does not go uh, water skiing or fishing or anything like that. So for those of you who were expecting that, you will be disappointed. Um, really, uh, the lake is just kind of, it's a setting to evoke like the dark forest of Transylvania more than anything else, I think. Uh, the movie, it uh, this well, this one uh, does feature the lovely Sanai Emmy, who, to my knowledge, uh, only appeared in three movies, of which this was the last one. Uh, and she, uh, sadly died in 1988 at the age of 36. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but at least you get to see her, uh, here and she does a, a really nice job as the, uh, the sister of the main character. Um, what this movie does well, it does very well. Uh, but the problem I had with it is that it does a whole lot of telling when it should be doing a whole lot of showing. Uh, and the, uh, the unraveling of the big mystery of the movie just, I, I didn't find to be all that compelling or satisfying, but like the first one, I mean, it's okay. Uh, it's just, you know, it, it's these weird, um, Eastern subversions of, uh, of what the movies try to emulate from the West that make it just kind of stand out a little bit, uh, and not necessarily in a, in a great way. Um, and then the, uh, the third movie in the series, Evil of Dracula, is 1974. Uh, so, yeah, the final movie in this little triptych. Uh, and Yamamoto finally uh, ramps up the aspects I was hoping to get more of in the first two movies, uh, which, you know, one of being one of which being uh, an honest-to-God plot. Uh, the film is much more lascivious, uh, where with the, the, I mean, the vampire bites uh, are all occurring on women's breasts in this one. Uh, and speaking of which, the movie does show a bit of skin here and there, uh, yeah. so it's fallen much more into the style of the time. Not a bad place to bite. Yeah, right. That's where I would uh, mark a spot off. But hey, yeah. you know, that's me. Um, yeah, the uh, the piggish nature of me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't I don't even try to rein it in anymore. I'm just like, yeah. Whatever, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, our hero in this thing, uh, he looks a whole lot like Sonny Chiba, perm included. Uh, and nice, there's nice. a very overt creepiness to the relationship uh, with the schoolgirls that he oversees. Um, <laughs> There is a painting in this thing that looks like it should have been airbrushed on the side of a van. Um, the uh, There's uh, Katsuhiko Sasaki, who is better known by most people as the inventor of Jet Jaguar, uh, who shows up here in the uh, the Renfield role. Um, the, the look of the vampires in this one is toned down a little bit this time around. Uh, though, like I said, I mean, he does wear, uh, a, the, you know, the, the cape and scarf uh, this time as well. Um, let's see here. Do, 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 do. Uh, uh, Yamamoto, he pulls off some uh, some uh, pretty nice visual uh, flourishes here. Uh, the film is much more in line, uh, I think, with the Hammer films being aped uh, than the first two are. Um, and has this, this one has this nice little macabre twist uh that plays on not only what we expect from a vampire movie in terms of like identity and all that sort of thing but in this odd theme of um vampirism being like a a condition of status and or like promotion uh that i found to be you know really really odd uh but it's really i mean but it's also fascinating so you know i was i was compelled on by that uh i thought this was a, a really nice little high note to close the trilogy on um and maybe that's because I finally got what I wanted uh, out of the uh, the set. So, uh, but it is nice. They all look nice. There's a there's not a whole lot in the way of extras uh, on the Arrow Blue, um, except for uh, there's a nice little uh, appreciation of the the series by uh, Kim Newman, the uh, the fantastic uh, British uh, author. 
Um, so, yeah, that's the uh, the Bloodthirsty trilogy right there for you. Um, moved on from that to a uh, rewatch of The Glass Key from 1942, uh, directed by one Stuart Heisler. So, uh, Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake uh, re-team for this little uh, noir. I will actually, um, I guess this would this would be considered pre-noir. Uh, 1942, most of the noir uh, started up uh, mostly after World War II. Um, and in this one, they uh, they dragged uh, Quatermass himself, Brian Dunleavy, uh, along for the ride. Um, and the cast overall, I think, is fantastic in this one, especially with uh, with William Bendix uh, showing up in the uh, in the Mike Starr role. Uh, as the uh, the meathead henchman, uh, and Joseph Kalea, who shows up as the uh, the slimy uh, villain in a world of criminals. Um, Veronica Lake particularly stands out. Uh, she's uh, you know the young firebrand as she typically is, um, and it always uh, saddens me to think of the problems that she had down the road, uh, and Don Levy too, for that matter. Um, but uh, Lake had. Uh, she really had a talent for uh, for doing like this uh, this fragile and hard bitten uh, at the same time. Uh, she was very very good at it. I thought I always thought uh, you can see a lot of the influence this and Hammett's work generally uh, had on Miller's Crossing. Though I don't think that that is a straight adaptation. Uh, and I'm I'm sure that you know smarter people than uh, than me have uh, expounded about the the differences and similarities. Um, one of the things I always think of when watching old gangster pictures is the way the characters lived, at least on at least on the the the, the, the printed page, uh, because you'd always get at least a few paragraphs about how the protagonist would fall asleep in his clothes at like the, the oddest hours of the fucking day, and then they would wake up and and they would detail out these massive, you know, steak and egg bre- breakfasts uh, that uh, they invariably washed down with like a gallon of hot coffee, uh, though thankfully never from glass mugs because I don't think they existed too much back then. No, they did um, not. There's a reason for that too. Exactly. Savages. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, And all I, ever, all I ever think to myself uh, is, you know, it's no wonder uh, so many of those guys had giant bleeding ulcers. Oh yeah, uh, because of this uh, this thing. And uh, this is this uh, this um, idea is uh, is only reinforced by watching William Bendix uh, slather a steak that's better described as, as a a side of beef in what I'm sure would have been pronounced catsup uh, back then. Nice. Um, <laughs> I can't I can't I can't get behind that, but nice. No, right? Uh, what, the pronunciation or putting ketchup on a steak? My wife's old school like that. She likes to ketchup on her steak. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can't do it. I can't do it either. I don't like ketchup, so there you go. I could do A1. Really? You don't like ketchup? Don't love it. Nope. It's not It's not, It's not. not a go-to condiment for me. See, I'm that way with mustard. Can't yeah. stand it. Yeah, I can do mustard, but I really like to mix mustard mayonnaise up. Yeah. That, well, okay, that I could kind of see. Yeah, yeah. I could kind of see that, yeah. 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 This ketchup's um, not real. It's not. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'll eat ketchup all day long. I mean, it, it's not like it's it's disgusting or anything. It's just not a go-to oh, for see, me. Mustard's that way to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, watching this thing, uh, watching him do this thing, you know, my heart sank a little bit, and I did get a little hungry, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I think that this is a this is a primo uh, proto noir uh, that's you know a bit overshadowed, I think, by its pedigree uh, and its legacy uh, among cin- cinephiles. Um, but it's, uh, it's really good stuff. So. Uh, yeah, seek it out if you haven't. Um, and then I went from there. Hold on one second. 
Uh, there we go. Uh, okay. So uh, a couple of things on Netflix that popped up uh, for those of you who like the, the watching the Netflixes. Um, there is Night Stalker, uh, which is uh, another. Oh, yeah. I watched this. This is one thing I did watch this week. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, this is about Richard Ramirez, obviously. Uh, it's four parts. Um, and, you know, Netflix really seems to be ramping up their, uh, their true crime documentary arm. Uh, and I think that this one is, uh, it's compelling and slick enough. Um, it really, really goes hard on the, uh, procedural aspects of it. Uh, although I think that, uh, I think that it's buoyed more by the brutality and like the sheer evil of what Ramirez did than the actual story of tracking him down because they get into graphic detail, uh, about just about, you know, yeah. every one of his, uh, I think there's attacks, whether they were fatal or not. Yeah, I think uh, one of the drawbacks to the thing, I liked it quite a bit. The series, mostly, I really like. I gotta, I gotta champion this as as grotesque as a grotesque, as <laughs> grotesque as this is, and macabre as I'm about what I'm about to say. You have to kind of see it to know what I'm talking about if you haven't seen it yet. But this 3D rendering of the crime scene thing that they do in this, this uh, almost Google Map type of approach to the crime scenes mm-hmm. is fucking amazing but yeah. yeah no that was impressive yeah it's not for everybody <laughs> no uh no. you got to be a pretty dark and twisted individual i.e uh host of the ggtmc yeah. yeah to kind of get into that but um at the same time i was kind of blown away by that and and if i had if there was one real drawback to the whole thing for me and this has been a this has been a complaint to me for me uh, about a lot of these true crime things there's not enough about the actual person that's committing these crimes. Now, right. I, I don't right. want them to be champions. Don't get me wrong. That's no, not no, what I no. want. But part of the reason why I'm fascinated by serial killers is, is I'm always fascinated by why. What yep. what what breaks? Where does it break? Well, this is why this is why we love the ending of Seven so much. Yes. It's not because it's not because of what happens. It's mm-hmm. because you get to hear John Doe explain himself out. Yeah. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, okay, you're just yeah. fucking weird. You're, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you might not get, I mean, I, there is a little bit about Ramirez. I don't know a whole lot a about little. him. I've never read any books about him or anything else. I knew he was pretty awful, but I got to say, I'm watching this documentary. I don't want to say anything. There was a few surprises in here I didn't know about as far as some of the stuff he did. I thought yeah. he mostly just broke into the houses of women or older ladies and, yeah, and did no, terrible it gets, things. It gets pretty, but yeah. it's much worse than that. Yes, it is. Yes, it <laughs> and uh, that was pretty surprising. Um, yeah. I, I, I wish, too, it would have gotten into the cult of personality a little bit more. Uh, well, that's kind of that's the thing. Okay, getting into that, it, it, it did bring up one question in my mind that, you know, kind of once it got lodged in there for like the last two episodes of this thing, it stuck there. Mm-hmm. And that is um, this question came up of has there ever been a documentary made <laughs> about serial killer groupies? Uh, and if not, why not? Yeah. Because I find the psychology of that fetish to be far more disturbing and fascinating yeah. Yeah, it's than the weird. inner workings of some gross slob like Richard Ramirez, even though I want to hear more about yeah. uh, Ramirez's inner workings, because yeah. I mean, obviously you just, it's, it's so, it's so removed from, uh, from humanity that it's yeah. not even, yeah, it, it's hard to comprehend completely. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I totally agree with you and I, I you know what, I, as big as a 
bit of a serial killer buff as I am, uh, I really don't know if there is a documentary about that groupie side of thing. There might be. Yeah, I mean, right. I, 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 would, I would think there would have to be. Because, I mean, these guys get fucking, you know, chicks sending them split beaver shots and all this kind of stuff all oh, the God. time. And, like, yeah, marriage it's... proposals and shit. And you're just like, what the fuck? Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. I don't, that's, that's a thing I don't get. Yeah. But it's like being attracted to the bad guy, but in real life. And it's very, and, and I can understand being attracted to the bad guy in cinema or in stories because I'm attracted to the bad guy in cinema and stories. But it stops there. You know, it's yes. like I'm attracted to it because that person or that character is doing something I would never do. Yeah. And so I'm fascinated by well, it. Well, they're, they're on that side of the screen. Yeah. But yeah, this, the, the, yeah, they, it happens all the time. I mean, it, it's, it's a consistent and, uh, it's still going on to this day. There's still women sure. that are doing this and it's a weird subset of the cult, our culture. That's very odd. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it really is. I mean, I don't uh, judge. I don't judge. You're, you're into what you're into. As long as you're not hurting anybody, if that's what you dig, that's what you dig. But I mean, it's a weird psychologically. It's very strange to me. But you know, teach their own. Dude, that's fucked up. I yeah. don't. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, there's the, there's no other way I could describe yeah, it. That's long, just fucked up. Yeah. To- as long as they're not hurting anybody, I don't care if you like that shit or not. But I mean, oof, I don't. I don't understand it. But whatever. Maybe it's the. I, I have to believe it has something to do with the danger element of it. Uh, I know. I, I, yeah, I know in this documentary, I would it does. But you know, at the same time, <clears throat> you know, you're saying that you're saying that you know you're not hurting anybody. But at the same time, no, I mean, how disrespectful is that? To it is disrespectful. To the victims of that? Yes, sure. I mean, that's just like yeah, it's, just, it's like pissing on a grave. But the yeah, it really is. But the I can see some part of me can understand the magnetism of it because of the danger. Um, uh, it seems to really kind of come up with guys like Ramirez who, yeah, you know, you watch this documentary and you see pictures of Ramirez and you can see there's an animal intensity to him, but there's also this overall kind of grossness. Like he smells like a a bottom of an ashtray or something, you know? Yeah. 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 Well that, you know, he's got the, the fucking heroin acne all over his fucking face. And and you you got to wonder to yourself, you know, are they attracted to that too? I mean, which they might be, they might be attracted to the junkie culture or, who knows? I mean, I, 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 I think it's unexplainable. I think it's the best way me and you can sit here. We can sit here and talk about it all day, but honestly, it's one of those. Human- well, I, I mean, there has to be, there yeah. has to be more stuff out there on yeah. that, which is just mind boggling to me that that's not something that comes up yeah. when these things, uh, when these things do come up, uh, it's just mind boggling to me. Yeah. But, and they, they come uh, up, they come up pretty much every time. Yeah. 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 It's not really as heavily kind of played in the uh, press as it used to be. Of course. No, no. Me and you come from an era where, well, and I would include Will in this too, but, you know, the 70s into the 80s, I mean, you could argue that serial killers were maybe a bit, maybe, I don't know, glorified isn't the word, but certainly sensationalized a bit more Yes, than I think they are now. Now they're... Well, that's because everybody's a serial killer now. Yeah, yeah, that's true. (laughs) Uh, The, uh, yeah, I just don't think that that culture's there anymore. But I think some things we're learning about serial killers, too, is kind of blowing our minds, too. Like, for a long time, it was always certain characteristics, and it seems to me like uh, those characteristics are changing, which they would because society changes, and sure. serial killers are products of society. So that was easy for me to say, by the way. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, you know, I think that that's kind of all the great books that have been written about serial killers and their ideologies and their psychosis and all this stuff is some of it's getting turned on its head lately used to be mostly a white male thing now it's kind of mixing up and 
you know, more minorities. And Ramirez technically was a minority. Um, well, yeah, but I mean, there's also, I mean, if you look at it, I mean, the demographic of the country changing, then it would make sense that uh, yeah. there would be more minorities coming in yeah. to this. And it's this always trade. It's all. Yeah. Yeah. It's a strange, it's a strange, strange world. Scary, scary world of fantasy and stuff. And I, there is one dynamic and we'll get off of this subject. There's one dynamic of this Ramirez documentary that I found quite interesting that I never really kind of thought about. And that was that he seemed to be excited by the startling look in people's eyes. So yeah, there's this yeah. theory, I guess a psychological theory that this gets guys off. The well, look it, of fear. It, it, I think that, that plays into the power trip thing. Yeah. That plays into the power trip thing that all, or I should say the most, yeah. uh, you know, rapists and, and yeah. things like that. Predators you know, such as him. Yeah. Predators such as Predators, him. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. Word. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because not all serial killers are rapists, right? And not all rapists Correct. are serial killers. It's it's it, it gets very complicated. Either way, yeah. you got to be a dark dude. You got to be a dark person to get into this stuff. And if you're into it, you know it's cool. I, I mean, I am. Uh, you know, I, uh, you know, I hate. You know, I, I don't sensationalize it, and I don't. You know, want anybody to think that I shit on people's families for it and stuff. It's terrible what happens to their families, but at the same time, I'm fascinated that any human being could hurt another human being because it's just not. It's just not in my nature. Yeah. I'm a big cud- uh, t- cuddly tuddy teddy bear. Titty bear. This I'm a titty bear. Yeah, I'm a titty bear. Titty bear. Yeah, I'm a titty bear. Yeah. It's like the, the vampires. <laughs> yeah. He's a titty bear. Okay, uh, so moving on from that little uh, slice of sunshine. Yeah. Um, also on the Netflix, uh, and this one is uh, directed by Martin Scorsese, a uh, series called Pretend It's a City. Um, oh, yeah. I heard this about this. Is, yeah, uh, this is about the uh, prickly humorist friend Leibowitz. Um, you know, I only went into this because uh, seeing Scorsese in the uh, the thing. I I don't. I should say this: Leibowitz is somebody who I'm I'm like tangentially familiar with. I never really read any of her stuff. I never really followed uh, her her, uh, her career yeah. or anything like that. I, I've seen her on a few. Um, a few shows in that, and I've always liked her uh, in those things. So that you know added into why I would be willing to get into this. Um, but uh, watching this thing, I I fucking loved this uh, this series. It's uh, it's seven half hours. Um, they're fairly um, they're fairly regimented in uh, in how they're set up, how they play out. Um, but they're it's just they're just insanely fascinating to watch. Um, you know, aside from being uh, fast as a whip and sharp as a razor. Uh, Leibowitz really, she's this, uh, a person who has, uh, a very, like, it feels like a big grudging, uh, sort of facility for insight, um, like genuine insights. Um, and two examples that stand out from the series are one, she states that, uh, your bad habits might kill you, but your good habits won't save you. Uh, which is, is you know, it's, I mean, I don't think it can come up with a truer statement than that. Yeah. Uh, as far as you know, people and all this, uh, you know, health culture and and uh, stuff like that, and you know, yeah, uh, which they get into. Uh, and the other one, uh, is in regard to a certain modern sort of reader, and uh, I would suggest also a modern sort of film goer, uh, when they complain, uh, about not seeing themselves in a piece of work. Uh, and she says <laughs> yeah. this, she says, uh, a book isn't supposed to be a mirror. It's supposed to be a door. Yes. Uh, and I found myself agreeing with her on this, uh, just about a hundred percent. And I think in this, 
um, particular aspect, she and Scorsese are keepers of forgotten lore in a sort of way. Yes. Uh, and that is immensely appealing to me. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I, 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 listen, it very, very well, it very well could be the, you know, the old man, uh, appeal, uh, to, uh, to that side of myself. Uh, and maybe it is, and maybe it is. Uh, but at the same time, uh, this is very well made. It's massively entertaining. Uh, it's very, very insightful. Um, and I just, I loved it to pieces. I, I absolutely plan on watching this, uh, this series again. Yeah. The, uh, down the, the road a little bit. I don't, I don't know if. I, I agree with you on the old man aspect of it. I, although I do think that, um, you know, Scorsese once had did a speech where he said the, one of the most dreaded words in modern culture is the word content. And I agreed with that. And I agree with him and Fran Leibowitz. I, I agree that everything is a door. Nothing is a mirror. It shouldn't be. If it is, then you, you got problems. I, that's why I try never to, you know, whenever I watch a, a movie, read a story or anything else, I try not to identify with any characters because I'm not supposed to. At least in my head, I'm not supposed to. I'm supposed to. It's supposed to be a window into the soul, a door, if you will, and that's the way I see it. I tell you, there's another. There's a documentary he made with her called uh, "Public Speaking" that's really good. So check that out. Oh so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you haven't seen that, it might be on HBO Max. It should be because it was an HBO documentary. So. Oh, okay. I would recommend you check that out as well because I think you'll like yeah, it because no, she I'll is she is incredibly fascinating and, and yeah she, right every it's like every piece of like every diatribe she goes on it's like you can pull a quote out of it and be it's pretty profound some of the stuff she'll oh, say yeah. and it's so dude it's it's like she's rattling this shit right off the top of her head and you're just yeah. like wow yeah. I'm fascinated by how uh, she's by on, how erudite she is she's yeah and she's like you know she's a humorist so she's on like another level than most people and i think that's sure. why i think that's why scorsese's been so attracted to her. i think he used her in the wolf of wall street and i think yep, they got to be yep. friends and uh he made well, a I know documentary she's been on, on she's been on uh she's been on law and order a couple times i yeah. think as a judge too yeah and of course she's a lifelong new yorker i mean she's new yorker to the bone oh yeah well dude that's the, that's the thing is they keep showing her they'll show her in uh in this thing um and she'll just be like walking around the streets and like bumping into people, rolling her eyes. And yeah. you're just watching her. You're like, she's, you could just t- see her like jonesing for a fucking cigarette. Yeah. 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 Um, she's great though. Yeah. She's, she's an awesome interview. And I remember watching oh, yeah. that public speaking documentary. I remember thinking, I don't really want to watch a documentary on Fran Lebowitz. But then, uh, Scorsese's name attached to it and everything else. I'm like, yeah, you know, I really, you know, I respect Martin Scorsese. So I'm going to check it out. And it was one of the better documentaries I watched that year. I can tell you that. Cool, cool, cool. Check it out, and I'll check. And I'm going to check out this other thing, this uh, mini series. I'm going to check it out. Yeah, no. If you if you like public speaking, you will like this. All right. Uh, and yeah, no, I I loved it to uh, to pieces. Um, let me see here. I believe that's all I got for the week. So yeah, you know, it's another thing. I don't know if that was enough. You know, that's it's, <laughs> no, no, no. It is. I think you know that thing. That comment is really kind of sticking with me. That window or that. Uh, mirror slash door thing it's not because, a mirror it's a door here yeah. yeah because that's uh that's the problem with the cancel culture in general right there isn't it uh yeah it is yeah they want everything to be a mirror of what they want yep but not a door into something they don't like yep which is uh that's a really a disservice to uh anybody <laughs> uh i think it is it's, it's certainly yeah it's a disservice to anybody who is uh creative in any way yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean uh, yeah i I'll never understand it. Uh, I know I won't, not at this point. And, you know, it's also one of those things where you kind of get to that that, uh, that tipping point where you're just like, well, and, and I also don't give a shit anymore. Yeah, 
Well, it's like this this thing that's going around now, this uh, wanting to cut Donald Trump out of Home Alone 2. What? Yeah, there's this whole petition. Uh, fucking grow the fuck up already. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. Donald Trump's a, he's a scumbag, but he's always been a scumbag. I'm not saying, yeah. I just, I mean, when did he, this change? Yeah, he, Come on. He was a scumbag back when Home Alone 2 was made, but now there's these people that want, it, want him to be cut out of it. And, you know, to me, it's like, you don't I think that, you don't understand listen, you, what that's supposed to mean. It's 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 supposed to stay there. It it should yeah. stay there. <laughs> yeah. No, I I agree. I, and I mean that you kind of treading into a much larger discussion about censorship sure, that's sure. currently going on in this country, which I find excruciatingly disturbing. Yes. Uh, because I think there are people who are trying to uh, silence. Um, voices that they they disagree with and i i can't i i dude i i really I, i've said it before we've had this sort of discussion before if there's one thing that gets my back up it's when you start fucking with the uh, with uh, freedom of speech yeah. uh and that because that is that is the in my opinion that is the linchpin that all of the freedoms that we have in this country are based upon and yeah. you could you could sit there and be a cynic and and you know argue about uh, how you know the freedom is a, an illusion and all this sort of shit, but at the end of the day, when people's right to be able to say anything, uh, just about in this country, um, and I'm not saying you got to agree with it, but I'm saying that you have to just deal with the fact that other people can say these things. Uh, when you take that away, you are really getting into a slippery slope of getting into actual fascism, yeah. not this bullshit pseudo fascism that everybody's been throwing around for the past eight or 12 years. Yeah. Uh, but you know, real, real fascism, fascism where, you know, they actually come into your house and start taking shit away. Yeah. This is uh, this is how this na- is, this, that's, that's how Nazi Germany started. That's exactly how it fucking started. That's how it started. It was, I, it was I, a I, cancel I, culture. I, it blows <laughs> it blows my fucking mind yeah. that people are just oblivious to this yeah. and sit there and still do it while they're calling the people that they're doing it to Nazis. It's like what the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah. How do you not get this? That it, it's unbelievable, but it happens well, all the time. Well, obviously they also they, these fuckers also failed history because they should really see it because it's 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 clear as the nose on your face. Yeah, those who don't study their history are doomed to repeat it, right? And man, we're repeating it because all these motherfuckers <laughs> failed. <laughs> exactly. Oh my god, that pisses me off in the worst way because that is that is the scariest shit in the world when people start talking about that. Yeah. And and they do it like bald face. They don't even hide that they're doing like they're gonna burn books and shit. I'm like, what the fuck is going? Like, yeah. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. No. Don't even get me started. I think too I got, late. I think I got you started. I think I pulled yeah, the. Uh, now I'm all fucking worked. Pulled, up. pulled the lawnmower cord there a little hard on that one. I jerked it. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I'm gonna have to jerk it after we get off the air to <laughs> yeah. fucking bring myself down. Yeah, yeah. Bring yourself Speaking back of, down. yes. All right, just don't do it to any Nazi porn, okay? Yeah, right. All right. Well, now I have to. <laughs> We're gonna take a Prisoners str- of Paradise. Here I come. I, I didn't. I, I, just for the record, I didn't watch anything this week other than the Night Stalker series. I just didn't get a chance to get into anything. It was one of those weeks. Is what it is, man. Is what it is. All right. Well, I mean, yeah, and, and we've talked off the air that starting this week, my viewing is probably going to be yeah. going down. So. Yeah. Life, you know, podcasting is for fun. Life is yeah. for uh, working. Uh, <laughs> Life is for living. Some some would say living, yeah, but if you're working, you're working. Well, so <laughs> yeah, but I like working. That's the thing. You know, yeah, I, I so like I. having something to do. Yeah, I like having a purpose. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. 
It, it means a lot to I'm me. I'm a slave to capitalism. What the that's, hell can I say? That's right. I am too. I'm looking at Blu-ray.com right now. I'm thinking about my yeah, next right? purchases. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> it's drooling. Yeah. <laughs> See, I mean, got the pre-com going on Blu-ray.com. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't need any sweet, soft words whispered in my ear. I just need a good, hot Blu-ray sale. <laughs> Man, if we don't get hate mail about this episode, I don't think we ever will. <laughs> well, I think every, I think people understand where we're coming from. And don't get me wrong, if you are in a cancel, again, that's free speech. That's your right. But just understand that, you know, you got you got to be careful what you wish for. Life is yeah, a, it's a slippery slope. And I think taking anything out of art or taking anything away to quote unquote protect the future and everything else, I think is a mistake. Yeah. You have to learn from the bad. You can't just well, you can't it. have good speech without bad speech is yeah. the thing here. Yeah, you can't. You cannot have. It. It's, yeah. it's the same. It's the same concept as of why why is there evil out there? Well, evil exists so we can have good. Yeah. You have to have the two. Otherwise, you have nothing to. You know. Yeah. I'm not saying it shouldn't be. You shouldn't work toward eliminating evil, but you should not erase it because it'll it'll always be there. Well, you can't. That's the thing. Is yeah. that's you know. Yeah, it'll always. You cannot. Be there. You cannot. You cannot legislate. Uh, people's minds. I'm sorry, you can't unless you actually put a chip in there, which I'm sure they're working on, uh, <laughs> to actually, you know, make people think what they want them to think. And by the way, who makes that decision? Well, like who's the, who's the moral arbiter of this shit that yeah. you know gets to say what's good and what's bad and what's yeah. right and what's wrong? Who the fuck are they? A lot of good books about that kind of stuff out there. Ah, uh, yeah, and they're all <laughs> scary as shit, and it's yeah. even scarier that they're all coming true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's totally scary. Very scary. Oh, yeah. This is the Gentleman's Guide to Profound Politics. <laughs> yeah, let's get back to comic books. Welcome back. Yes. <laughs> Just remember, Juggernaut's name is Kane Marco. Never forget that. I was going to say that. <laughs> I was going to bring that up. I didn't. Well, he, he. I just recently read an issue of X Force, that wonderful magazine, and uh, <laughs> it was uh, uh, him in it with a uh, kind of a beanie hat on and no Juggernaut costume. And I'm like, that's got to be Juggernaut. And sure enough, it was. Yeah. They're like Marco. I'm like, oh, okay, it's Kane Marco. And I always remember his name. It's such a comic book name, right? Kane Marco. Oh, yeah. I yeah. mean, it's it's up there for me. It's like top well, ten was, comic book names. I, I thought they did some interesting stuff when he was in Thunderbolts, look, but then they kind of dropped that stuff. Of all the X Men creations, Juggernaut's one of my favorites. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm not, I'm not a huge X Men guy, but of all design wise and everything else, he's always been one of my favorites. I would I, agree with that. I even own a Juggernaut action figure. I mean, I, I, I do love the Juggernaut. Yeah. I even like the Vinnie Jones juggernaut in uh, X-Men 3, The Final Stand, or The Last Stand, whatever it's called, where oh, he my. says, it's the juggernaut, bitch. Oh, no, he's got to get canceled. <laughs> he's a misogynist juggernaut. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. He didn't He didn't respect her pronouns. His pronouns? I guess it would be his pronouns at this point, huh? I don't know. I don't know. Because it was uh, Ellen Page. We are going to take, uh, take a short break. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Talk about a slippery slope. (laughs) Yeah. And when we come back, we'll talk about the flesh eaters from 64. We'll be back right after this. All right, here we go.
All right. Oh, I got a little fishbone today, huh? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. All right. Oh, my. Oh, my. Yeah, that was a uh, a happy, non-aggressive uh, song. Right? <laughs> uh, yes, I enjoyed that one quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, uh, let's get into the first film of the day, The Flesh Eaters from 1964, directed by Jack Curtis. A group of young adults trapped on a desert island find the water inhabited by a violent form of flesh-eating organisms. Yeah, man. So this is a flesh-eating virus before the flesh-eating virus. And man, this is some serious flesh-eating. I mean, it's uh, down to the fishbone, to say the least. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they show up, too. Yeah, they do. And uh, so, yeah, this one is directed by Jack Curtis. And uh, Todd brought this up a little bit last week. But um, Jack Curtis worked in the uh, the comic industry for a little while. Arnold Drake. Uh, yes. Uh, was it Arnold Drake? Yes. Arnold Drake, yeah. Yeah. Who wrote the screenplay. Yes, that's right. My bad. Sorry. And oh. uh, uh, I got it wrong. Got it mixed up. Um, All right. Jack Curtis, because I was getting ready to go the other way with this, Arnold Drake did voices for... Uh, <laughs> For uh, cartoons, but it was actually Jack Curtis who did voices for cartoons for a while. I don't know if you know that. He did some... Uh, did I some, did not. He he played Pops Racer on Speed Racer and Inspector Detector. Oh, okay. Yeah, he did Inspector Detector and uh, stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, He's also... He was a bit of a, I think, a uh, radio guy anyway, because uh, he's actually, I think, in... Uh, uh, I think he does the radio voice in uh, Kubrick's uh, Killer's Kiss as well. Uh. So... Bit of bit of fun stuff there with the Jack Curtis, yeah. and then of course you know this this feels like so this is an interesting uh, Curtis didn't live very long he was only forty four when he passed away Drake I think he lived a little bit longer than that Uh yes yeah he lived he just died uh, thirteen years yeah, fourteen fairly years ago. Yeah. fairly recently yeah yeah but he's known for his uh you know we talked about his comic book stuff but uh, he did uh, some work on uh, Doom Patrol. He's uh, one of the co-creators, yeah. Yep, and he actually got a credit on uh, the TV show as well, so mm-hmm. pretty cool. And some Young Justice stuff, and mostly a DC guy, uh, mm-hmm. Arnold Drake. Um, but he was also the uh, was he the main creator? No, I don't know if he was the main creator or not. He's is he the guy that created Dead Man? Was he was he the one? I can't remember uh, who created Dead Man. I don't recall on that one. Yeah, that's an interesting. I might have to Google that later. And see who the yeah, actual yeah, yeah. quote unquote creators. Well, it says he was co creator of the Doom Patrol and Dead Man for Strange Adventures. So I'm gonna say that he was a creator for Dead Man. There you go. But Doom Patrol and Dead Man are, are two of the more stranger uh comic book properties out there. Yeah, he got into the the weirder stuff. And I think that, you know, this this feels like something that would, would have been dreamt up. This movie feels like something that would have been dreamt up yeah. by one of the one of the people who got involved with that. Because it's it's like this it's a really simple idea that they allow to get, you know, quite big, like literally quite big while yeah. still being, like, while still having this kind of, um, there's an intimacy I yeah. think, in this movie and it's that, very, uh, that is kind of, is the thing that, you know, Drake was kind of good at. Yeah. And it's a very low budget film as well. It's uh very low, budget. kind of low budget, uh, mid sixties. There's a lot of these films. I mean, this is kind of the beginning in my opinion, not maybe not the beginning, but it's certainly in that era where they were making low budget horror films. In America, um, people were getting money from advertising agencies and things like that, and just kind of going out and shooting a movie. Yeah, because this is a one location type. You can just see the budget all over this thing. 
Oh yeah. Um, well, that's that's part of the appeal, I think. Yeah, and it's got a bit of a you know, like you wouldn't be surprised if George Romero saw this. And, no, no, you wouldn't. And folks like that, and obviously Glenn Danzig probably saw this. <laughs> oh yeah. The Misfits probably saw something. I mean, this is you know right in their ballpark of things they sang about and. And, and you know, I'm actually I was kind of surprised. I was looking through the Misfits from uh, a discography and realized I'm, I don't even know even the new Misfits. I don't even know if there's a song called Flesh Eaters, which I'm amazed there's not. It just sounds like a Misfit song saying it out loud, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It really does. I mean, uh, there's all kinds of songs that are uh, titled essentially the same as a lot of these low budget features that were made in the '60s and the '50s and uh, into the '70s. Um, so. Even the new iteration of the Misfits still does that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah. So it's about a there was a there was a punk band there was a band the Flesh Eaters wasn't there? Yeah, there is a band called the Flesh Eaters. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought about playing music, mom, but I don't know if anybody really know what that is. But check it out, <laughs> check check it out if you guys want to. Yeah, you know, they're out there. Um, so this this cost about uh, about a hundred grand to make this movie. Uh, and, uh, you know, even in 64, that's a little bit of, mo- that's a little bit of coin, but you can kind of tell there's a lot of, it's, it, they, they keep the budget down, uh, by, you know, shooting a lot of close-ups, keeping some stuff in the background, I think to keep the production value up and stuff. But mm-hmm. this is a very script heavy, uh, type of, uh, 50s kind of sci-fi or 60s sci-fi kind of horror film and saying that, I mean, it's not, it's not visually striking, uh, but it, it's interesting because it is so kind of. Even though it's shot on a uh, probably on some island off the coast of probably Long Island or something, I'd imagine. I don't know where it was actually shot, but that's what it kind of yeah, looks it, like. I, I always found it funny that it basically looks like they're on a beach that you could just walk off of it, it, back it is. to civilization. I just verified it. Is I mean, they call Island. it an island. But. Yeah, I just verified it is Long Island where they shot it, which I mean, you can almost see it immediately. Like Long Island, Montauk, and the Hamptons. So you can you can pretty much right. see that immediately. Um, you can just tell it has a certain look. Those beaches and those. Uh, that area, that East Coast uh, beach look that you just kind of can tell immediately. And uh, the movie doesn't really star anybody of well-renowned, although Martin Koslick, uh, he's played some bad guys in some movies. Yeah, uh, I think yeah. almost always a Nazi. Almost always a Nazi. He's got a Nazi look. He's got a yep. serpentine look. And uh, well, he's, He also kind of reminds me of um, Udo Kier in some ways. He does. He's a lot of fun in this movie. He's uh, oh, yeah. he's going for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, that's kind of fun. Um, it's it's not the greatest acting, but it's it's kind of great, like mid sixties horror acting. And that uh, well, he, clearly he has devious plans. <laughs> the yeah, meeting. yeah. Well, you got the you get the guys. Yeah, I mean, you have okay. You have Byron Sanders. He's like Grant Grant Murdoch. That that you know that talk about comic book names, right? Grant uh-huh. Murdoch. Yeah. Uh, he's the he's the classic like two fisted maverick. You know he's a man of action. You get Barbara Wilkins, she's the plucky love interest, and and you get Martin Kozlik. You know he's he's obvi- you know, obviously always the Nazi. Um, and every character I think is is pretty standard uh, in in regards to like their their function in the movie, with the exception of Kozlik, who is just you know he's pretty gross, but keeping things lively. He's got this like he does this like shifty, you know almost like mustache twirling kind of performance. Yes. Uh, in some ways, uh, then. You could compare all of the people in this uh, in this movie, uh, the characters to the the cast from Gilligan's Island in a weird way, with oh, the exception that there are no, there, there's no howls. Oh my god! So the vibe that I got from this movie, and this is not an insult because I love Gilligan's Island, it is very Gilligan's Island in some ways. Now it's not; it doesn't have the kind of overall kind of 
broad comedy that Gilligan's Island would have. But Gilligan's Island, if you, if anybody recalls, would sometimes get into some weird kind of slightly horrific territory with headhunters oh, yeah. and and things like that. And it, it, it's almost like that Scooby-Doo element to, to mm-hmm. Gilligan's Island that I always enjoyed. There'd be giant spider. Wasn't there a giant spider on Gilligan's Island? I'm pretty sure there was a giant spider at one point. Uh, not a not a I giant one, but a, but a big one in a cave. I remember a big one in a cave, and I, I, I maybe I'm maybe I'm remembering things wrong. Maybe that's and and I don't want to go back and revisit that and find out. But <laughs> that's the way I want to live my life. I want to live my life thinking there was a spider on Gilligan's Island. Uh, I'm sure there was. Um, but it did, it reminded me of that. Um, them getting their news from the radio, you know, reminds me of the little white radio in uh, Gilligan's Island, which was always a very yep. big deal. Yep, yep. And, and and you know the good the women, uh, uh, both of them are sexy in their own way. One's the old movie star, uh, quote unquote, or the ginger. Yes. Um, you know, in a, in a weird bit of the world being a small place, my wife is actually friendly with the daughter of uh, Ginger, and in, in real life. Of Don uh, Don Lu- or. Uh- uh, Tina Louise. Yes, yes. My wife's actually friendly with her. Like we actually communicate with her. It's very it, really. And we just found out a couple of years ago that she's the daughter of Tina Louise. <laughs> huh. She never brought it up because she thought you know we would you know I guess judge her in some way. But uh, yeah, it's very strange. Like she's invited huh. us to stay out, you know, come out and visit in, in uh, California and everything. And <laughs> it's a, it's crazy. It's it's a, it's one of those moments where you're like, wow, this is the world is a really small place. I mean, I grew up loving Gilligan's Island, mm-hmm. and of course, I one of the windows into my soul is I, I went in loving Ginger. I came out loving Mary Ann. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I dig that. <laughs> Rest in peace, Don Wells. Yes, one of my favorite uh, women to ever grace any screen of any sort. Uh, yeah, anyway. no, she was a she was a lovely person uh, off screen as well. From uh, everything that I'm, yeah. I understand. Yeah, yeah. Um, but this movie, it, it's a very simple setup. It kind of reminds me a little bit, uh, although it doesn't play with uh, the kind of popularity of certain elements of pop culture. But the uh, horror of Party Beach, which we did a while back, yep, it kind of reminds me of those kind of films. Yeah, it opens that with monster, uh, monster uh, from Piedras Blancas. All yeah, that. all that kind of stuff, and. It, it opens with you know so this movie gives you this is a old school exploitation movie because it gives you it gives you some pretty good gore uh, for the time. Uh, matter of fact, there might be a few moments in here you'd probably be shocked by mm-hmm. uh, for the time frame. And then it gives you a little bit of skin, which I was a big fan of. Obviously, as a lover of exploitation films, uh, I have become completely fascinated with Barbara Wilkin after watching this movie. Uh, yeah, who, who plays Jan Letterman? Letterman, and she is profoundly sexy in this movie. Yes, she is. I don't know. Well, what... and, and so is the 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 first uh, the first person that we uh, the first girl in the movie, uh, Barbara Wilson. Yeah. Uh, and, oh, yeah. In the opening scene. Oh you yeah. Know? Her as well. <laughs> and I'm not going to lie to you. I'm also a big fan of uh, Rita Morley in this film too. She plays the aging uh, alcoholic movie star uh, Laura Winters, and uh, she's pretty great as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, old Professor Peter Bartell, he can't keep his hands off of these ladies. He, he, he's a uh, <laughs> what's that word? Lascivious, lascivious, lascivious. 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 Yeah. So he is that. He is a as you said, mustache twirling. I would say lip licking bad guy as well. You know, <laughs> a lot of people go to the mustache twirl, but this guy's a little bit grosser. He's he's a little bit of a lip licker. Well, it's because yeah, but it's because he has like no lips. So. Yeah, yeah. He's a very thin lipped fella. Uh, he's a thin lipped feller. Yeah. <laughs> 
but the casting is kind of fun because it's it doesn't really star any big stars and that kind of gives it an element uh, i always think those kind of things give it kind of an immediacy that's one of the things i like about night of the living dead and and a lot of these older horror films is you know obviously everybody's got to get their start somewhere and some of those people go on to other things but some of these people this is the only movie they ever do Mm -hmm. um i don't know if byron sanders did anything else he's got he's got some kind of movie star looks he's got a a nice scar on his chin yeah looks like he did a few things but he didn't Uh, do a whole lot nothing that stands out yeah 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 nothing that really stands out yeah i'm looking through here and not really seeing anything trick baby he did but he played a hotel clerk in trick baby um but he's a he's he's pretty good in the movie if a bit well, he's uh, stiff. Yeah, he's vanilla. He's very vanilla. Yeah. He's very, you know, but again. It, but that's because that's his character. Yeah. His character, all these people are archetypes in this yeah. movie. There's yeah. no. Yeah. Well, it, it plays both sides of the coin, too. Now, you know, obviously, I'm a male, a red hot, uh, blooded American male. So I was talking about the skin of the females, but it does give you the skin of the males, too. I mean, if, if you're into that. Oh, yeah. Thing. So it's an equal opportunity offender. There's plenty of naked male <laughs> torsos in this. Yeah. If that's what you're into. The most grievous. Uh, General Grievous at that. <laughs> that uh, I don't know who that is, yeah. but I love it. Uh, maybe seen in this, and I have to wonder if Eli Roth saw this. Do you remember when Eli Roth pops up in Cabin Fever, how obnoxious he is? <laughs> that that character? There's a beatnik character that shows up on the island in this, too, and he is clearly, I think it's Omar, I think he is clearly yep. one of the most obnoxious characters. Dude, he's so overdone. <laughs> Yeah. so overdone and it has to make me think that eli roth saw this because there's a lot of in a weird way there's a lot of cabin fever going on here <laughs> well i mean poor omar yeah i mean he's a bit much to take i will admit uh but i also think that he gets a pretty raw send-off he does he does uh in the movie and and the thing with the the tape recorder is really fucking creepy yeah it is but yeah, there's some fun stuff if if illogical there's some fun stuff sure that the, sure the characters doing this, and uh, and we're not really spoiling it by saying Professor Peter Bartell, the Martin Koslick character, is a kind of a heavy in this because I mean, again, if you see this movie, the minute he comes on screen, you know, oh yeah, it's it's like when they cast Bela Lugosi, you know, it's just, it's one of those things, <laughs> you know. Uh, well, he was the hero in the Black Hat, though. Yeah, it's almost like when you nowadays when you cast Leo Leo Schreiber in a movie, it's like. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always hey it's saber tooth. <laughs> yeah, there's always a an ulterior motive. It seems like when he's casting a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is true exploitation, and it, it's kind of fun because I like going back and looking at these things where they kind of would stretch boundaries, and yep. you know the studios wouldn't wouldn't uh, put the budgets behind these things, so they could kind of push it a little bit. And of course, the '60s, the drive-in starts to come alive even more, and you got guys like H.G. Lewis and. And uh, Jack Curtis and William Castle and everybody trying to get people into movie theaters and into into cinemas in any way they can because TV has taken a chunk of the business. And uh, gore and skin are two ways to do that. Absolutely. And it'll that 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 comes and goes throughout movie history. It, it's nothing new. It'll uh, right now nudity seems to be one that's kind of you know poo-pooed a bit nowadays but it'll come back yeah but it's the i mean it's the cheapest i, I think it was corman said it's the cheapest uh, special effect there is yeah it is 
And, I think it was Corbin that said that. Yeah. I might be misremembering, but uh, yeah. yeah, it's the cheapest thing. And it, I mean, this thing, this movie is, I mean, it, it's clearly tailored to the teen driving crowd for just from that. The, I mean, the opening scene, right? There's some not really great rock. There's some TNA with the, the camera, very focused on the Barbara Wilson character, which I appreciate. Uh, there's a little bit of that, you know, that Bosco blood going on. Yes. I mean, it's, it's plain as the nose on your face sort of stuff. And it's just, the movie continues in that uh, vein uh, all the way through. Yeah. So essentially, what we got here is we got a uh, an old movie star, an alcoholic, or, or an active movie star, maybe an old Broadway star, and she uh, she and her companion need to get somewhere. Yeah, the they Norma have, Desmond of uh, Montauk. Yeah, we have the <laughs> we have a, some plane issues. They have to land on a desert island. They end up running into a doctor, and this is all before a prologue involving some um, some creatures or potential dangers in the water. And so that's essentially the basic setup of the movie. And then we get the what can only be described as optical effects of the creatures. Is It almost looks like scratched film, like it's reflective yes. material. Yeah. But it almost looks like they went in and hand-scratched the film in spots. Yep. It looks uh, like, yeah, they scratched with the negative, yeah. And I, I'm not, I wouldn't be sure if they did that, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what happened because this is old-school optical effects. So I would imagine that because it, it kind of looks like cigarette burns or anything you might know from scratched film. Um, you pretty much pick that up pretty quickly. Uh, there's a great line about the shiny creatures that eat flesh in here, which is, uh, that shiny stuff is bad medicine, which, uh, <laughs> almost made me play bad medicine by Bon Jovi this week, but I thought Ooh, it was a bit of a reach. That, yeah. <laughs> I don't think people yeah. can take that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, these, the, it does play with a little bit of uh, some of the sensibilities at the time. Again, the Omar character, he's a beatnik, he's a hep cat. So yeah. to speak. Oh, he's he's love is the weapon, man. Yeah, and uh, he shows up, and uh, there's almost like anger toward this character, not just from our our cast, but also from Curtis and Drake. It seems like it's like they, <laughs> like they, yeah, nobody likes beatniks. Yeah, they just want to, you know, it, it, they're one of the first subcultures that I think kind of drove some people crazy. Mm-hmm. Probably guys like Curtis and Drake were probably like, oh god, fucking dirty <laughs> dirtbag hippies. And of course, you know, if we go much further, further on, um, I think that some of the, you know, you brought it up, it, it is kind of like Gilligan's on with Gore, but I think some of the fun stuff about this is how kind of not, they're not broad performances. They're kind of straight and narrow performances. Like we know a, who's the good guy, B, who's the bad guy, C, who's the sex pot D, who's the, the character that kind of gets everything to go wrong. The alcoholic character Rita Morley plays who just keeps fucking things up because of alcohol mm. and stuff. And again, there's judgment here. Obviously, this is the 60s, so alcohol is kind of frowned upon more so, maybe as a, a devil's fluid uh, and uh, bear grease. And, uh, oh, Jesus, the dog. <laughs> yeah, I hear him in the background. Um, uh, unless that's your dog collar, you're rocking. Uh, I'm not going <laughs> to mention um, this, this conversation is over. Yeah, you don't want to talk about that, do you? <laughs> So one, tighter, pull, pull so, so one of the fun facts about this movie, and I don't know if you caught it, uh, I'm going to assume you did, um, but if you didn't, no big deal, but this film is edited by Radley Metzger. It is indeed. Yes, I was going to mention that. And, uh, you know, And Radley, just, uh, yeah, he would go on to become one of the kind of pioneers of adult cinema. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because this, uh, you know, having him as the editor on this just kind of ties in more um uh, to the sort of connection between this and like the seedier fare uh, 
yeah that was popping up more and more prevalently i think uh because i mean this this movie um it feels like it's just a step above like a porn loop or a cheap roughy yeah yeah uh and maybe that's like the indie spirit uh stuff like this that was you know just at the cusp of the whole new hollywood era where this is where this kind of situates itself uh-huh um, and I think that, you know, having him, having him in there really just kind of, it brings that out a little bit more to me at least. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't, uh, you know, it, it completely makes sense yeah, when he, you find that out. He worked on the sound on the film as well, but it, it, he was young. He would have been younger. Although, you know, Radley lived, he lived a long time. He just died in 2007. So yeah, 2017, yeah. my bad. He just died a few years ago. Um, he would have been, uh, well, no, he wouldn't have been, he'd have been in his thirties. So he was trying to crack into the business. I don't know enough about his, uh, his work to know for sure where he, you know, where he started. Although it looks like Flesh Eaters would have been like the third film he edited, edited, but he did uh, the Beach Girls and the, the Monster, and he also did the Dirty Girls, Dark Odyssey, and Gangster Story. Okay, so he did some stuff, um, and then of course you know he goes. He, he's just a guy who feels like it worked his way up from the bottom, sure. and then got into the business and started making movies. And he was already making films by the time. He edits this movie. He had already made, uh, looks like he had made Dark Odyssey and uh, Dictionary of Sex at this point. And, um, you know, Dirty Girls would come shortly after. So he was already working and trying to become the the Radley Metzger we know. Now, one of the things about Radley Metzger, for those who don't know, is he's kind of the one of the first guys who kind of brought an art aesthetic or an auteur aesthetic to adult films. Yeah. Um, so if you see a Radley Metzger film, you kind of know he, uh, he had an eye and he definitely had talent. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your outlook, he just kind of got tied into adult films and, uh, you know, that's not for everybody. I get it, but, um, he's an interesting guy either way. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I I can't say that I like all of his stuff, although, you know, his, uh, some of his earlier stuff before he got into like hardcore, hardcore stuff. Yeah. Uh, I found I find really good. I mean, Camille 2000, uh, which I know I had you guys uh, uh, review uh, a long while back. Uh, I really love that one. That one and Licorice Quartet. Yeah, uh, I think are both really really good movies. Like oh, solid movies outside of just being you know you know yeah. sexploitive. Or- yeah, the image is really good too. I mean, there, there, there's there's definitely films of his that are really good, and you can see if you go back and look at those, you can see that there's almost this. It's very clear that. In if his career would have went a different way, he could have been a different type of filmmaker altogether. Absolutely. And yeah. you have to yeah. wonder if, you know, some guys came out of the porn world and did okay. Um, all of them had a bit of the, quote-unquote, I hate using this word, but all of them unfortunately had a bit of the stain of the pornography on them. Uh, even Bill Lustig kind of brings that up occasionally because, you know, he shot pornography as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even Joe Dante did a little, he did some roughies and things like that. And yeah, him, so, Wes Craven, Sean Cunningham. Yeah. All these guys did, you know, worked in the business to get started somewhere. And it was, there was a time when it seemed to be more accepted. That's the way you work yourself up nowadays. I think it, it's funny, even though we feel like we're much more mature as a society, it seems like now that you're more pigeonholed than you ever were. If you make a movie of a certain genre. Mm-hmm. Like, um, it's great when guys like, uh, you were bringing him up earlier, like Watiti, it's great when the guys like him can cross genres and do their own things and work in big budgets and stuff like that, but they're few and far between. Um, nowadays, it seems like even more so than before, you make this kind of movie, and that's pretty much the only movie you get to make. And that seems counterintuitive to me. 
totally and maybe does. that's just totally you know does. maybe that's that because I mean you would think you would want these people to be more able to slide between genres to be able to do yeah. more things, but yeah. why why you would only want to keep them in one thing is it just that makes yeah. no sense to me. That doesn't well, like from from a from a, from a, a dollars and cents perspective it makes no sense. Yeah, there's that, and then there's the course the the PR initiative of the whole thing, which is a lot of studios don't want to deal with the fact that you know. Like well, that's Bill, just fucking laziness. Yeah, like that is like Bill Lustig. If if you got a guy that's like Bill Lustig now, like let's say Gregory Dark, who is a famous kind of porn director who tried sure. to move over, I think, into horror films and stuff. Like the media cannot let that go. Like they they have to bring up the fact that it's a porn director, and it's like so. You know, I mean, it for me that's what it's like. Um, mm-hmm. I just I just I'll never understand it, but that's just me. Okay, that that you know that, that I don't want to get on my high horse here and talk about how, you know, it's okay to absorb tons and tons and tons of violence, but the minute somebody sticks a body part inside somebody else, it's considered horrific. <laughs> That's just me, but uh, you know, neither here nor there. We'll move on from that. That don't get off the. <laughs> I'll get off of that milk crate. Um, but so. I think the thing I like the most about this movie, oddly, is the script because yes, all the characters are interesting, and and it certainly feels in a lot of ways, even if you don't know that this is written by a guy who worked in DC and worked in comics, it still feels like a sci-fi comic in a lot of yep. ways. Yep, and it's it's kind of interesting because it shows you how directly correlated and how in unison comic books. Uh, and film can be. I mean, comic books are essentially just storyboards. I mean, that's yep. essentially what they are. And uh, if you're really good at the medium, you can kind of parlay that into filmmaking. And uh, they're essentially the same kind of things. And uh, this this has the feel for me because I've been going back and reading that old Ditko Lee uh, Spider-Man stuff, which is, mm-hmm. you know, it's so outdated, but it's so of its thing. It, it's so Stan Lee and Steve Ditko, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no other way to describe it other than that. Uh, no, there really isn't. They, no. they were these are singular little points in uh, in, in history. Yes, uh, the way that they were, yeah. and that's you know it's funny uh, because yeah, I, I agree with you. One of the things that amazes me is that uh, the writing in this is is strong enough that the movie never really slows down, even when it's focused on uh, conflict and melodrama over the the horror aspects. And I think that that's one of the things that. Um, and I don't know if I've ever, you know, had brought this up on the show before, and I'm pretty sure that I have, though, is that usually when I'm when I'm doing something like reading a book or, or something like that, uh, it's you know the the action stuff is usually the least interesting stuff that I want to read. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, and th- the same thing holds holds true here is that you know always the case for me myself, as well. <laughs> yeah, and that's and that's that's kind of like with the the Lee uh, Dicko Spider Man's as well. Uh-huh. Uh, it was that that was the whole you know reason that. Um, that Marvel became what Marvel became is because of uh, their focus on stuff like th- stuff like this, where it's you know, it's about Peter Parker being a this this schlub who can't catch a break no matter what he does because he's got this uh, this uh, interior uh, voices massive yeah interior yeah. voices right I mean that's yeah 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 it's psychology that's that that was always the argument between DC and Marvel was that Marvel was the one that came in with psychology while DC was still doing the broad comic book stuff a- at the time exactly exactly and 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 also you know you kind of feel bad for the characters in this, uh, in this thing, kind of like you feel bad for Peter Parker. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, you know, they're just a little bit pathetic in some way or another, all of them. Yeah. I mean, it's never really addressed here, but I mean, it's clear that the pilot has uh, marital problems or yeah. Yeah. at least 
at least significant other problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of just just kind of touched on, just surface wise that uh, something's going on there. And then of course, you know the the uh, June Wilkinson or is it June Wilkinson or what is it? Barbara Wilkinson? Uh, Barbara Wilkinson. Barbara Wilkins character kind of falls for the pilot and he kind of falls for her and there's no real resol there's only some slight resolution to the story uh, i don't want to give it away but there's no full resolution it's kind of left kind of hanging as opposed to what might happen in some ways it really goes full tilt at some point um and i only know this because i looked up the trivia i'm not this i'm not this smart of a movie guy but i know they use some of the sound effects from them in this oh and uh with the ants and the way they move and stuff which makes sense if you kind of hear some of the sound effects of the the kind of uh, the white flashy creatures, the bad medicine, so to speak. Um, they kind of use that, but then there's this rather large creature at some point. And again, I'm not—I don't feel like I'm giving anything away by saying that, but it kind of surprises you because it kind of comes out of nowhere, mm-hmm. and and that's pretty interesting. And uh, how that kind of plays out is pretty interesting as well. I, I, and and I like that the the character interaction. It, I mean, it totally feels like that. It feels like '60s comic book stuff. It, it and it works because the most interesting scenes in this movie tend to be the scenes where the characters are kind of talking to each other and it's dealing with some psychosis here. It's dealing with, uh, you know, uh, evil. It's dealing with alcoholism, uh, infidelity, potentially, uh, things that again could be seen as exploitive elements, but are really just Mm -hmm. human elements. Mm -hmm. And I think it works. And you know, I gotta be honest with you when I sat down to watch this movie, I, I'd never seen it. I'd heard of it, obviously, over the years. I'd seen Wait, the poster. So this, this was the first time for you? First time watch for me, yes. Okay. So I sat down and watch it, and uh, I'm th- the first thought that comes to my mind, and this is terrible, but as a guy who watches a lot of films and who doesn't have a lot of time, and I'm sure you've had these same thoughts, I sat down and watch it, and I'm like, oh, man, this is 84 minutes long. I bet it's 20 minutes too long. <laughs> <laughs> it's a 60 sci-fi horror type thing. I bet it's 60 minutes. I bet it's, you know, 20 minutes too long. I bet, I bet it is. And But it but it flows really good. I mean, it slows it's down not- in a few spots, and it gets a little caught up in itself, and it maybe gets a – yeah, I mean, I, it, it's no maybe to it. It does get repetitive after a little while. Uh, it felt that way in spots. But I think all the characters are interesting. And I think all the things that happen to the characters are interesting, except for you know, I don't. I'm not a big fan of the Omar character because I think he's brought in to inject some type of energy into the movie as this kind of sacrificial lamb. But it really comes across as this kind of just really, really broad performance that's kind of irritating and kind of out of place in the movie. Well, I think that I think the part of that is because I think there is a, an element of dark comedy to this thing um underneath it all and you know i mean when you get to like omar and yeah he's obviously he's really he's broader than he really should be uh but uh, i think that once you get to the the um the shot of him on the raft uh there which is technically kind of rough uh but um it's it's a very comical sort of shot in the way because of its roughness mm-hmm. yes uh and i think that i i do think that there is an element to this thing where they were just kind of like I mean, you can't be buying this shit, right? You yeah. can't be buying what we're doing <laughs> on this movie, right? Uh, so I think that there, I think that that's that you could just you could kind of sense that going on there, and it's it's almost like a you know we're all in this together sort of a, a thing um, that you you get or I get uh, when I watch this movie that you know they're just kind of you know we're we're having fun here, yeah, uh, as well as you know trying to to be a little bit shocking, yeah, and I think that's that's part of the fun of the movie. And uh, it's it's by no stretch a masterpiece, but it's kind of a forgotten. I think it, you could argue 
it's a little bit of a forgotten like little gem from the er, the time. Uh, I absolutely think it is, and it's it's interesting that uh, it isn't. It, it's one of those things where I'm almost kind of perplexed that it isn't talked about more. Mm-hmm. Because it's very similar to things like Night of the Living Dead and 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 films like that, films we've talked about mm-hmm. in the past. These kind of low budget uh, horror pictures, and I, and I know I sound like Martin Scorsese right now. These kind of low budget <laughs> horror pictures from uh, you know the era, and uh, there's something you know obviously there's something that appeals to me about this kind of guerrilla filmmaking, uh, low budget type stuff that I, I'm a big fan of anyway. But the yeah. kind of imagination that uh, Curtis and Drake and uh, the actors bring to this and Metzger with his editing and all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's, it's got a really nice zippy energy to it. Mm-hmm. And I think if people watched it, I think they'd be surprised. I think they'd be surprised uh, by a couple things. I think they'd be surprised by the amount of skin on display. I think they'd be surprised and don't get me wrong. It's not a, it's not uh, you got to cover your kid's eyes type of skin, uh, but it's just enough to make you to get the blood boiling. Um, and then I think they'd be surprised by the gore, um, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. even though it's not the gore we've come to know over the years. No, but it's pretty, it's pretty blunt about it. Yeah. For 1964, it's pretty shocking. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it, it has to be kind of like when Herschel Gordon Lewis hit the scene it's like, Whoa, wait a minute now. What are we doing? <laughs> Which wouldn't have been far off from this either. No, wouldn't have been very far from this at all. And, um, and I think they'd be surprised at uh, the way it looks. Uh, there's a lot of day for night here and stuff like that. But, I mean, the film overall looks really nice. And I was really surprised at uh, the quality of the print I watched on Tubi. Now, Tubi's quickly become like this kind of go-to weird service for <laughs> Todd and I that we, I don't think we ever saw coming. But uh, it's pretty cool, uh, some of the stuff they got on there, I got to say. so. And it seems like everything I've ever watched off Tubi has been pretty high quality. So, Yeah, 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 for the most part, yeah. I've been pretty surprised by that. But, uh, yeah, I don't really have much more to say about the movie. I liked it quite a bit. Uh, it was a nice watch. Like, again, I told you, I went into it thinking, oh, God, this is probably 20 minutes too long. But it ended up being a nice, breezy, fun watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad. Uh, yeah, I'm glad that uh, that you dug it. It's always been a, a favorite of mine. Um, you know, I saw this thing totally randomly late at night when I was a kid. Um and this thing, you know, when I first saw it back then, it struck me in much the same way as uh, as Del Tenney's Horror Party Beach, which we already, you know, kind of talked about. We we did on the show, um, and I'm I'm fascinated, always have been, um, by these very small, very exploitive, but very interesting, even a little innovative uh, horror movies. You know, there's a level of um, of getting away with it uh, that you get in these things that's only really accentuated because they're uh, they're in black and white. Um, so yeah. Uh, couple of things to add not up really a whole hell of a lot uh, let me see here um the uh, the special effects go from uh, cheap but effective you know they have like glowing bones and and so forth and like we were saying they're actually scratching on the emulsion and, and all that sort of stuff when the the when the flesh eaters are, are, are tiny um and they go from that to uh still cheap and effective but more rubbery uh and just a whole mess of fun um and for the the longest time uh, I thought that I was misremembering this movie's finale, um, but when I uh, when I you know came back and did a rewatch of this thing, I discovered that you know I was I was spot on uh, about what happens in this thing, uh, and totally delighted uh, that this was in fact the case uh, because the ending of this thing is really I mean it's uh, it's out there um, as far as these things go, and it's also exciting. 
Um, and it's also, you know, you can see a lot of um, the cheap sort of ingenuity that had to uh, to go on behind the camera uh, to get this thing put on film at all uh, and to have this them, uh, them pull it off. Um, I think that Jack Curtis is um, he's I think he's fairly utilitarian in his approach. Uh, but every once in a while, he shows off some uh, some pretty keen uh, technical chops, like the occasional uh, he'll have the occasional deep focus shot or low angle shot. Uh, so you know, I, I appreciate that. Um, I'm sure that uh, by this point in time, the patterns emerged uh, as, as as much as I've beaten it into the ground. Uh, how uh, this and movies like this appeals to me. Uh, is you know I love that uh, I love I love common people up against very uncommon problems. Um, I love characters having to be resourceful. You know it's uh, it's something that and I've, I'm sure I've said this before. Um, it's something that Doug McClure was very good at, and I always think of humanoids from the deep when I say that. Um, and you know the same reason that the uh, the Die Hard films uh, were so successful, I think. Uh, is this sort of uh, the sort of attitude with these uh, you know two-fisted plain people who get thrown into uh, a world that's way beyond their ken uh, and then have to uh, to figure uh, figure out what's going on and, and overcome it. And I also I also love um, you know last ditch efforts where you you genuinely don't know who's going to walk away from it. And this film really embodies all of that. And then, you know, cause obviously none of these people are, are, you know, movie star movie stars, even though they're all, uh, like I said before, they're all archetypes. They're, you know, they all fit the, their molds. So you kind of know who's going to make it, <clears throat> who's going to make it all the way through to the end and who's not. Uh, but at the same time, you get, you, there's kind of in the back of your head, there's a kind of that little, that little itch that's saying, you know, well, this one might not, that one might not, you know? So, uh, I, I appreciate that. um, the movie is just about entirely post-dubbed, if not entirely post-dubbed. Um, and I think that that plays into the alien appeal of this thing, uh, at least for me. Um, let's see here. The, uh, the, the, the weakness of, uh, of the flesh eaters, the flesh eaters themselves, uh, is, is really odd. Um, like yeah. it hardly makes any sense, yeah. especially considering <laughs> the film's whole premise. Yeah. Like I didn't even but bring it, it up. It's so weird. <laughs> yeah. Right. But it does add into the rather, you know, the, this Gonzo climax. I mean, it, it's kind of a mess, but it, it's just it's it's so wild, right? Um, so, to, 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 with that in mind, I think that uh, the movie does. Uh, I, I think it does a rather nice tightrope walk between being lured and being absurd, um, and in a way, and like I was saying before about you know how I think that it's you know kind of darkly comical in a lot of ways. Uh, I think that it this thing. Uh, owes as much to stuff like EC Comics uh, as I think it does to the the sci-fi movies of the 1950s, which it's you know clearly trying to emulate as well as trying to kind of uh, break away from, uh, and it's it's very clearly uh, focused on a, a certain element of the the audience. I mean, like I said before, this thing is this is teen drive-in fare uh, to the extreme, um, tailor-made for it, and uh, and it works uh, fantastically well, I think. Um, yeah, I do think there there are there are some uh, some saggy bits in this thing, uh, definitely. Um, but I mean, it's kind of hard to to not have that even at uh, at, at eighty seven minutes long. Um, but that being said, I mean, there's there's far more in this thing that I find compelling than uh, than not compelling, and uh, I I completely a hundred percent agree with you that uh, it just kind of floors me. Uh, that uh, this thing it just never seems to come up almost ever uh, when uh, when uh, Halloween rolls around or in horror movie discussions in general. 
uh, why that is, I have no idea, but yeah. uh, I really yeah. think that it should be in the conversation because it really is up there. And it really does feel kind of like one of those early things. Like, um, I mean, yeah, obviously, uh, four years before uh, Night of the Living Dead, which got, you know, all these sort of uh, um, accolades for uh, for doing what it did on screen, which a lot of that stuff that you're seeing in the Flesh Eaters before that, and a lot of that stuff you're seeing in uh, stuff like the Horror Party Beach and, and all that sort of thing as well. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think that, you know, maybe it's just selective, uh, selective remembering, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Um, or maybe it's just that, you know, Jack Curtis never really went where, uh, went as far as, uh, George Romero did as far as careers go. So, um, but that's, yeah, that's pretty much it, man. I, I, I'm, we've pretty, there's pretty much hit every, uh, every, um, angle of this thing that you can uh, you can think of to hit uh yeah. and yeah i mean it, it is out there on on tubi uh for those of you who uh who are interested in seeing it i would recommend it heavily uh i'm you know a big fan of it always have been uh, i'm glad that you uh you got a, a lot of enjoyment out of it as well so uh kick it over to you for uh, for make or breaks and that and so on and so forth yeah um okay um make a break for me Ooh. I don't know. I, I really like the scene where the alcoholic actress goes back out to the plane and, and what happens, what transpires after that. Okay. I like the setup of that. And I like the, if you watch the doctor's face <laughs> when they're blaming the actress, mm-hmm. like if they could see the doctor's face, they clearly see that he's guilty of everything that just transpired, but <laughs> it's pretty great. But I like that scene quite a bit. It seems like a little moment, but it's, it's actually the, the, to me that's the narrative hook of the movie like that's when we know that the doctor is up to no good and everything's changing and that mm-hmm. he's he's wanting to keep people there and all that kind of stuff uh, my MVT I'm going to go with Curtis I'll give it to him also you know Carson Davison shot this movie that is Jack Curtis uh, that's a pseudonym uh, I think he's, ah. a, he's a cinematographer as well so I do know that I'd look that up because I was curious who shot it because the film is very well shot so Curtis himself shot it. And I don't know what Curtis died of for 44 to be young, but uh, 44 is very young to die, especially when you're 47. Well, we also say that because we're yeah. older than <laughs> But, you know, it's a shame. I don't know if he had a hard life or if he had a, you know, something he was really into or, well, looks like he died of pneumonia. So that mm. could get anybody anytime. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm, try- I'm trying to look here and see if maybe if he – uh, I'm trying to see if there's anything. Oh, he was born with the the umbilical cord wrapped around his neck. Uh, so Ooh. there you go. Uh, and his hand was kind of messed up because of that. So interesting. So he had some health issues and stuff. Um, this is an interesting guy. Uh, it's a shame, you know. I don't know if he he didn't do a whole lot, and I'd be curious to kind of look at some of his other stuff though, mm-hmm. to see what what. Well, he did directing wise, he didn't do anything else. But, no, no. you know, I'd be curious to kind of look at some of the acting he did, although it looks like almost everything was voice work. Yeah, except for one on-screen thing. I think he wrote a couple things. We were all naked, he wrote. Looks like, it looks like he played in that world as well, right? He played in that world of skin flicks. Mm-hmm. Had some fun. Um, Yeah, so I'll give it to him. I don't think I'd ever be able to give it to him again, Jack Curtis. Um, Although I got to say, like I said, Martin Koslick is a lot of fun in the movie. I mean, it is old school, lip licking, mustache twirling, bad guy performance. Uh, 
Uh, score for the movie for me, 7.5 out of 10. I quite enjoyed it. It's really good. And, uh, yeah, it's a recommend for me. I would definitely check it out if folks uh, haven't they wanted it, especially if you're in a mood for something like this. I think you can't go wrong. Cool, cool. I'm, I'm very glad you liked it. Um, okay, so uh, make or break for me. I'm going to go with the finale. Uh, it's insane. Uh, it's tense. And I think that it works fantastically uh, summing up the whole shebang and finishing it off. Uh, MVT. Uh, I would say I, you know, I love the insane invention of it, but since I think that that largely comes from the script here, I'm going to go with Arnold Drake. Um, he really does a a, a, a nice job of mm-hmm. uh, keeping this thing running smoothly. Um, and score for me, I'm uh, right in line with you, seven point five out of ten. Uh, yeah, this is a this is a fun one. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's one that I like to go back to, uh, on occasion now and, uh, revisit because yeah, it's just, uh, one of those things that's, uh, like comfort food. It's a little Mac and cheese thing for your soul. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mac and cheese is good for the soul. Fucking right. <laughs> All right. All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to discuss 1980s flash Gordon. We'll be back right after this. singles i can think a band ever released where things from the movie are in the single <laughs> yeah i mean it's, well that's yeah yeah uh as far as i'm concerned you know you could keep your bohemian rhapsodies i would take flash gordon over uh yeah. <laughs> just about any other queen song yeah. that i can think of it's pretty great it's a pretty except great. for maybe fat bottom girls but. hey that's 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 more of an ideology than it is. Well, a, that's yeah. I was going to say it's more of an ethos than, <laughs> than it is yeah. anything else. But I mean, I stand behind that. But yeah, Fuck it. literally, like to. yeah, literally. Um, okay, so here we go. Flash Gordon, nineteen eighty. This is one of those ones where you think to yourself, well, how, "How have we not covered it before?" Mm-hmm. Uh, I've often called this over the years the kind of GGT GGTMC version of Star Wars because that's what it kind of is in a lot of ways. It's mm-hmm. got Italian money sunk into it and. Uh, it's pretty crazy, and uh, this movie is to red what Unflick is to blue. Um, <laughs> Flash Gordon, directed by Mike Hodges, a uh, football player and his friends travel to the planet Mongo to find themselves fighting the tyranny of Ming the Merciless to save Earth. Earth, as uh, uh, <laughs> as uh, the great Peter Wingard says in the movie. Indeed. 
Uh, yeah, he he yeah, he just uh, he slimes out every line of dialogue that he has. I love him so much in this movie, and uh, yeah, of course he had one of the greatest voices of all time, anyway. Indeed. And uh, and his face, I mean, Jesus. Yeah. I mean, he's essentially Doctor Doom in this. Uh, oh my God! Yeah, yeah. Matter of fact, when I was a young kid, I I got him mixed up quite a bit. Um, I always used to think he was Doctor Doom. Uh, even I was really kind of cross pollinating my my geekery there uh, because I knew who Doctor Doom was, you know. I, so I saw this movie in the movie theater. Uh, I was very young. My brother was even younger. Uh, my mom and dad wanted to see it, and they took us. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a vivid memory from my youth. I well, I don't recall if I saw this in theaters or not. I want to say I did, but I kind of think that this may have been an early HBO watch for yeah. me. Well, it definitely was a repeat viewing for me once it hit the cable. It was one oh, I watched God, yeah. a lot. And there's always been something about Flash Gordon that I've always appreciated. Flash Gordon, and uh, there's another science fiction movie I'm trying to think of off the top of my head. I may have wrote it down here in my notes. I'm looking to see. Uh, well, it would help if I looked at the notes for Flash Gordon and not the notes for Flesh Eaters. But, you know, that's that's the way it is. Oh, Barbarella. So there was always something okay. about Barbarella and Flash Gordon that I always liked more than Star Wars. And I think it's the, the danger. The well, the pop art, the danger, the sexuality. Yes. The yeah. Europeanness of them. I'm not saying that, you know, I think Star Wars is the, the far greater film of those three. Uh, it's not even close. But there's something about Barbarella. There's the horrific elements, the sexual nature of the film, Jane Fonda, and the, the very the very much strong sexuality of it. And, of course, the Roger Vadim filmmaking. And then, of course, there's this with Mike Hodges, who wasn't the original director on this, Nicholas Rogue was. But there's the Dino DeLaurentis, DeLaurentis, Jesus Christ. There's Dino all over this. There's the pomposity of it, the ridiculousness of it, the the garishness of it. So many things. Well, you it's, it's more. About. It's a little more visceral. Yes, yes. The in use ways? of uh, ink and water in aquariums. I mean, that is all mm. over this yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, Ornella Muti, Moody, who are Muti mm. or Moody, uh, who is sexuality defined. Mm -hmm. uh, there's something about her. And of course I had a huge crush on Melody Anderson too, which I still kind of do who plays Dale Arden in this. I don't know if it's, she's got some kind of look that I really kind of get into. I don't know what it is, but I quite dig it. I quite dig it. Like, uh, Peter Wingard is colitis. I quite, I quite Most dig it. Your majesty. Yeah. Your majesty. Very loud and deep voice. He's pretty great. And you know, so let's get it. Let's, let's cover one of the, the, the controversies of this movie now. Yes, Max von Sydow is playing a quote-unquote Oriental-esque type character. Indeed. But really, it's never really kind of talked about that Ming is... I mean, you can get a slight vibe of Oriental or Asian culture from Ming and his daughter, but I don't feel like you get a real strong vibe from it. I feel like it's more distant than that. Like, it's... They're, they're, they're their own creation. I don't really get that. Now, of course, I know the, the history of Ming, the Destroyer, or Ming, the Merciless. Yeah. Merciless, yeah. yeah. Ming, the Destroyer. is. Uh, you know, I know what it is, but I think it kind of stands well, on its own in this movie. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. Uh, so, Mongo, I mean, in and of itself, I mean, the name right there, Mongo, Mongol, uh, is, it's essentially meant to be a mirror for Earth and all the strife there. So, Ming, you know, he's... He's yeah, he's he's the yellow menace, right? Yes. And that's evident, I think, uh, not only from his name, obviously, but his look. Uh, but we get in this movie, we get people representing Africa, 
with the uh, the scene with George Harris. Yes. We get the the Arborians who are meant to be British. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Phrygians are like Scandinavian, right? It's but it's cold there, and all the women wear bikinis. Um, the dwarves are, I think, meant to be Italians, mostly just from the one that uh, the Princess Ara walks around on a chain and calls Fellini. Yeah, and there's some... uh, the Hawkmen. The Hawkmen are meant to be Arabic, I believe. Yeah, there's a weird. The actors who play them are all in brown face. Yeah, there's a weird uh, Wizard of Oz vibe to the to the small people as well. It's a, it's a strange one, but it's there. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Not, if but... you think about almost all movie history, there seems to be a Wizard of Oz vibe in some things. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, no I think, I'm, I'm I think with that's you. That's absolutely there, but yeah, I mean, I could see certain people kind of flaking about about that. It's not something that's that's you know driven into the ground. Yeah. Uh, it is certainly something that's there from the the uh, the comic strip. Yeah, and we uh, should say it just we, is. we should say that Clytus is a film creation. Like Clytus is not in the yes. original Flash Gordon uh, canon, so to speak. Right, he is a creation just for the movie. And uh, he's a great creation. And uh, mm-hmm. again, uh, if Marvel didn't sue, they should have sued. Uh, because I mean, he is—he is a hardcore riff on uh, Doctor Doom, although much more. It seems to me uh, dirty. <laughs> yeah, he's—he's he's a little skanky. Yeah, like uh, Doom wants power. Clytus wants everything else <laughs> i was getting ready to say another word starts with p but uh, i kind of held back <laughs> although he may be asexual he may be in love with himself i don't know what quite what he is it's never really well, you, you, do, never really you, do, get the, you do you do get the idea but then you're also thinking to yourself like how would he do it yeah 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 it, it's never really kind of explained what clytus is right and his death scene is memorable to say the least yes so. yes yes anyway and of course, the Hawkmen are in there and stuff. And of course, a lot of the stuff all kind of—it's very comic book in a lot of ways, and mm-hmm. it's interesting. I really do wish Fellini would have made this movie. I mean, he was the original guy that uh, De Laurentiis went to. I really mm-hmm. wish. Can you imagine Federico Fellini's Flash Gordon? Absolutely. <laughs> I don't think it would have been far off, to be perfectly yeah. honest. Would have been even more sexual. Yeah. Right. Be even more robust with the uh, big bosomed women. Oh, there'd have been prostitutes everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Prostitutes and guys smoking everywhere. All right, I'll let you go ahead and get started on this. My daughter just came and down probably here. Go put her back to bed. <laughs> I'll let you get started. I'll be back. All right. Uh, so Mike Hodges uh, is the uh, the director credited on this thing. He's not the first name I think that anyone would bring up uh, when they mention wanting to produce a science fiction movie. Sure. Uh, for like stylish crime pictures, he saw that he did, uh, he did pulp, he did get Carter, he did the really great, uh, croupier, uh, from, uh, back in what, I guess early 2000s, uh, late, uh, late nineties, I want to say, I don't remember a hundred percent. Uh, but clearly, uh, the man is not just a one trick pony. I think that he brings, uh, a solid level of craft to this movie. And, um, though the reputation of flash Gordon is heavy on the cheese. I think it's uh, it's a pretty well-directed movie, uh, all things, uh, being equal. Um, there are two things that, uh, everyone takes from this movie. There's the, uh, the queen score, uh, which is undeniably great. Uh, and the, uh, the production design and art design by Danilo Donati and John Graysmark, uh, respectively, uh, the movie really and truly tries to, take the world of flash Gordon and transpose it onto the screen. Uh, and I think that it highlights both the strengths and the weaknesses of adapting, uh, four color properties. Um, obviously, uh, yes, it's, uh, it's visually striking and the scale of it is impressive. Uh, but there's also the fact that 
um, when you don't filter these things before you you know build and film them, uh, things can get campy, whether intentional or not. And I do think that the camp elements here are uh, are intentional. Um, comic books or the more high concept comic books aren't meant to mirror reality. Which hey, look at and, you know we're going back to uh, talking about friendly, but what's again? Um, so when reality tries to depict them. Uh, it could be considered uh, hokey, uh, for want of a better term. Uh, the, you know, there's a reason that the X-Men don't prance around in their Dave Cockrum designed costumes in, uh, in in Brian Singer's initial X-Men movie. Uh, as much as you know, I and I'm sure plenty of other fans would uh, have liked to have seen those. Uh, and Matthew Vaughn did come in, you know, closer to them uh, in uh, with the X-Men First Class, the movie. Um, I mean, don't don't get me wrong. I'm not uh, I'm not knocking uh, you know Flash's style or look in any way. Uh, I don't think that this movie would be remembered nearly as fondly without uh, the visuals. Um, so there's that. Uh, the characters in the film are interesting, and again, they follow the comic strip, though they're they're all uh, they're all amplified, right? So, so Dr. Zarkov played by Topol, who every time that I hear, uh, the actor's name, I think of the, uh, the smoker's tooth polish, uh, commercials. That's that right. Used to see all the time. That's right. Um, <laughs> he's, uh, he's near sociopathic uh, in some ways, but he's still brilliant. Uh, but you know, he does want to save the earth and Dale is basically, you know, arm candy. Uh, though so she does get to do a little bit of action here and there. Uh, Volton and Baron are, you know, they're, they're the hard one allies and they're overblown in their passions. And, you know, Brian blessed, uh, you know, like we were saying before, he, he absolutely re- relishes the shit, uh, out of his role here. Um, yeah, I mean, he's, he's that way in just about everything he ever does. Uh, sure. he's, he's what I would call a, uh, well, I, I wouldn't call him an over actor. He's a personality. Yeah. I would call him a broad actor though. I mean, he really Shakespearean, he really brings, he brings all of the Brian Blessed when he in any role. It seems like I've never. Really, I don't know if I've ever seen him be subtle. It's like he has these uh, moments of quiet, and then there's these explosions of dialogue delivery, <laughs> <laughs> and it's pretty amazing. And he has amazing teeth. Yeah. Right. Yes. Dude, he looks. Yeah, they look like just those flat, straight. His his teeth look like uh, uh, they actually look like doctor teeth from uh, the Electric Mayhem. Yeah, you could show. Uh, kind of you way. could that show kind of straight across the fucking grill. You could show a film on those teeth. <laughs> yes, <laughs> indeed, you could. Um, you know, but uh, yeah, he's he's great. Uh, you know, Ming uh, of course is merciless. Uh, as is his fantastic looking right hand man, Clytus. Oh yeah. Um, Max von has, he, He's you know I know. Again, the controversy's there, but he's really fun as Ming. I gotta say, oh, he's fantastic. He yeah. absolutely is fantastic in it. Uh, and Clytus has the the wild advantage of being played, obviously, to delicious effect by Peter Wingard, as we've mentioned. Which there's another X Men reference for you, Peter mm-hmm. Wingard, mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, himself, uh, mastermind, and the whole Dark Phoenix uh, saga. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, uh, you know, Ornella Muti is, you know, obviously she's Princess Aura. She's naturally, you know, turned all kinds of heads then and now. Uh, in this movie, um, she's the definition of a sex pot, and De Laurentiis uses her to spectacular effect. Yes. Uh, not only spicing things up for Flash, uh, but given us the the audience, a female character who could be tortured on screen uh, and still be kind of sexy uh, in that regard. Yes. You know, adding in that nice little dose of uh, Italian sleaze to the mix. She really knows how to rock the hot pants. Uh yeah. <laughs> uh, well, then again, so does Sam Jones. Um, well, yeah, he gets to wear those uh, when he's getting executed there. Yeah. 
Um, but, uh, you know, Flash is the archetypal hero. And I have to say here that I think uh, Sam Jones resembles Dolph Lundgren to a certain degree. Um, yeah, he does. He's uh, <laughs> Yeah, right. Uh, but Flash is essentially, he's like, he's um, he's a good-hearted meathead. Uh, and it's these two qualities combined uh, that I think make him compelling. You know, were he just a jock, we wouldn't care, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Flash genuinely cares about other people. Yeah, he uh, is. And uh, not just the people from his own planet. He is uh, apple pie. I mean, he is. Right, yeah, yeah. He is that personified. That's what he he's is. The, yeah, he's, he's the all-American uh, back when you were allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he cares about the people of Mongo. And all the people under Ming's iron fist, uh, you know, he believes in freedom and he's willing to put his life on the line for it. And that I believe is what makes him uh, special as a character. You know, he's not really, you know, Flash isn't really known as like being a, he's not really known as being a strategist. He's not, uh, he's not going to outthink his enemies. Uh, he, he beats them with his fists and his heart. Right. And the film really goes all in, uh, on this sense of really, it's really a non-cynical, uh, altruistic sort of heroism. Um, that, uh, that he embodies. I mean, yeah. he says in the movie, you know, there's always hope, uh, to one of the other characters. I think it's when he, they're in, um, I think it's when they're in Arborea and they're in the cage and one of the Hawkman's in the, in the cage with them. Uh, and Zarkov at one point, you know, states that, uh, you can't beat the human spirit, mm-hmm. uh, just to kind of drill that in a little bit more. And we should, um, uh, we should mention that, uh, Sam Jones is, he's dubbed throughout the movie. Uh, that's not his voice. That's, uh, Peter Marinker. Right. And uh, that was one of the things. Uh, I think he eventually got kicked off the film at some point. I think they had shot the majority of his stuff, and at some point, I think De Laurentiis got fed up with him. And well, I think him off I the think movie. he was. I think Jones was pissed that he wasn't something with a paycheck. Yeah, yeah, that it, was happening where he was just like, "Yeah, fuck this." Yeah, and so I mean, there's a storied history behind this movie. That's there is pretty indeed. amazing. I mean, uh, George Lucas wanted to originally make this movie. Um, of course, obviously he goes on to do something else that's huge, arguably better, um, or non-arguably better. Um, you know, Nick Rogue gets hired and Nick Rogue's a bit of a visualist and he, he shits the bed on it. And, (laughs) and then, you know, Mike Hodges comes along and Mike Hodges doesn't even like science fiction. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Well, he wasn't known for science fiction. Yeah. He didn't like it either. And he just kind of came along and decided to make the movie. Uh, and, and thankfully he did. I think, you know. It, it, it turns out okay. Also, also looks like at least four of the five time bandits are in this movie as the dwarves. How about that? Nice. Yeah. All those guys that were in time bandits are pretty much, I'm seeing their pictures right now as I'm going through the deeper cast. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. And, and Deep Roy played the uh, pet, the pet dwarf. Yes. He was Fellini. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Pretty great. So it's funny, uh, you know, kind of like, uh, Jake Speed a few weeks ago that this movie is ostensibly uh, aimed at children, uh, but there are things in here that are just not just uh, they're yeah. not just nightmare inducing, but they're specifically geared yes uh, towards a more adult audience. So yes. you have stuff like uh, Princess Aura's torture with the boar worms and all that. Yes, uh, you have stuff like the demise of the three main villains, which are villains. <laughs> the villains. Yes, um, that's how I, I sabotage Amen. the system. Uh, so. Uh, th- these, uh, yeah, their demises, they're all, they're, they're both bloodthirsty and kind of gross, especially Clytus's. Um, you have the scene where, uh, where Zarkov, um, he relives the triumphs and tragedies of his life, which is, it's kind of troubling because, uh, you know, what we see is, is troubling as well as it's being so fast. It's like, uh, it's all overcranked. So it's it's kind of comical and kind of freaky, mm. uh, and then you have the would be scene, 
which is both tense and gross, the would always looked like it was kind of uh, chewy to me, uh, as does the uh, the rubber claw sack so, uh, in the swamp. So I'm going to go on a limb here. This is mm-hmm. either going to be one of those embarrassing moments or one of those moments where uh, I might be right and people might be – and you might be this way. I don't know. Okay. To me, the whole would beast thing, that, that that's a metaphor for – female sexuality in some ways uh yeah be careful yeah. you might get stung you know hands in yeah, the cookie yeah. jar type of type of deal yeah and yeah no no that's there hodges shoots it almost it, it first of all it's 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 a great scene because it's very yes it is it's very tense and i love it uh, it's one of my favorite things in the whole movie uh just you know it's my favorite it's my favorite scene in the whole movie uh yeah but also there's a sexuality to it that I I used to get confused by. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, when you were watching it, there's there's that. Well, that's the thing about this movie, though, is that yeah. there's there's so much of that where you're just like, yeah, I'm 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 feeling things here that like, <laughs> yeah. what the fuck is this kind of thing? And especially when you're like seven years old, you're like, what the fuck? Yeah, the wood beast is almost you're like not a, quite getting it, but you're you're, yeah. you're kind of getting it, but you're not really getting it. It's at almost all. like a, an extension of Muti's uh, sexuality. Yeah, it's like her. It's like her. Way. Her wood beast is in there. Mm. Is inside the giant uh, yeah. stump. Yeah. <laughs> As Clytus would say, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's it, there's something about that scene, and it and that it's a it it is that metaphor of sexuality, and again, that's all over the movie. The yes, fact that uh, Ornella Muti is uh, she's a spread eagle. She's face down, but she's spread eagle being tortured. Her dad's kind of into it, which is also kind of sexually kind of gross mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of penetration throughout the movie penetrating yep. people seems to be a big deal yep uh so there's this weird vibe of sexuality all throughout this movie that's very strange and, yeah well and the, that's, that's the older i get the stranger it gets <laughs> yeah right and, you, and like i said i mean you just you really are kind of scratching your head that this was made for for kids yes because uh, you really are just, I mean, yeah, I mean, and this is my next note is that, that yeah, there's there's heavy doses of sex throughout, and and you know, there's the uh, the tight leather vinyl costumes to uh, the seduction of uh, of Flash and you know Ming's lust for Dale, and it's not just sex, but it's it's really it's it's some twisted sex, right? Because mm-hmm. there's like there's a heavy implication that Ming and Ara are having uh, an incestuous relationship. Yes. Um, you know when uh, when when Ming has his his uh, his um, sex slave ring working Dale over uh, when they first get to the planet. You know, Clytus comments that uh, that her her stimulated response rivals Ming's daughter. Yes. Um, and it's like you know it's like they get together uh, and just have her you know do twist twisted uh, sex shit to everyone, including Daddy. Yes. Um, and this is reinforced, I think, by the way that uh, Aura and and Ming kind of like they're standing there, they're caressing each other mm-hmm. while she's trying to talk him into or out of shit. Yes. You know, it's pretty creepy, sexy stuff. And then it later is. on, later on, um, uh, Prince Baron uh, refers to uh, necrophilia, which most kids in 1980 probably didn't get. No. <laughs> um, you know, unless you're really, really dark, unless you got some dark shit going on in your in your no. home life. You probably didn't understand what the fuck he was talking about with necrophilia. Yeah, it's probably true. Um, I hope it's but true. But there's, but I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, just, it is all over this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's, there's a certain, uh, like cruel insanity that runs throughout the entire movie as well. And I think that this largely comes from the look of the thing. It's like playing with some, 
bizarre, colorful toys that, you know, when you're looking at them in the dark from your bed, they scare the living shit out of you. Right. I mean, that's the kind of like vibe that you get from this movie. It's kind of like it's kind of menacing, well, but yeah. you know, inviting. Well, there's another thing too. You know, Ming in the beginning, they get this um, dialogue looped over the planet Earth. Clytus is like, they call it the planet Earth. <laughs> How peaceful it looks. That's my Max von Sydow. But there's a great moment too where he says, "I like to play with the thing for a while before annihilation." I mean, that's a very yeah. sexual line. Yep, yep. And of course, yep, obviously, you know, playing with something for a while, it's foreplay. It's before the big event, before the climax. I mean, it's all, it's there right from the beginning. And if you don't see it, you're oblivious to the fact uh, yeah. that it's going on. Because, I mean, it is right there. It, I mean, Hodges is smacking you in the face with it. He's all but smacking you in the face with it. That's what I'll say. And that's that's a sexual line in itself, in and of itself. But it's true. I mean, he's, he's just throwing it right in your face. And it's there from the get-go. And if you don't get those vibes from the father-daughter thing, uh, the Clytus. There's something sexual about Clytus, even though it's never really mm-hmm. explained. Uh, Flash is humble apple pie, but he is also kind of a walking sex uh, symbol in a weird way. Yeah, he's, he's red-blooded. Yeah, yeah, eye candy for the sure. this female subset. And also just, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, it's it, it's all over the movie, and I like it. Timothy Dalton's horny all the time. Sure. Um I mean, it's just great. And, of course, obviously, Brian Bussett's character is everything is sensuous to him. Food, sex, death, violence. Mm-hmm. He gets off on everything in the movie, right? So mm-hmm. it's just it's it's all there. And it's kind of amazing. And I agree with you. It's kind of amazing this movie gets made and, and Hodges is able to pull off all this stuff and them to think it's for kids. Now, of course, obviously, you know, the... <laughs> Probably when they made it, they probably thought, you know, kids don't pay attention to that kind of stuff. But, of course, we know now that kids pay more attention to stuff than we than, than they did in 1980. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, clearly, it spoke to me in some regard the yes. same way stealing my dad's Playboy magazines spoke to me yes. by the time I'm 8, 9, 10 years old. Yeah, I didn't know exactly. Yeah, you, feel, you do kind of feel like you do kind of feel like uh, you don't want to get caught watching this yeah, movie. I, 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 yeah, yeah, and I, there's a part of me is like I don't know what I'm looking at, but I like what yep. I'm looking at. You know, yeah. it, there's this there's this vibe there. So yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, I don't know what porn is, but I know it when I see it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. So yeah, you know, uh, the did FX- you know that Keith Carradine was originally cast to be Ming the Merciless? Wow, <laughs> that would have been Carradine. a different. Yeah, that would have been a different movie, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Wow. wow! If you'd have, if I, if there'd have been anybody that does for you sound to guess, very Nicholas Rogue esque <laughs> for a, a casting though. Yeah, it does. Well, Debbie, Debbie Harry was originally going to do the Princess Aura part, which I'd have been down for that. But Keith Carradine, all right. Keith Carradine does Ming the Merciless would have been odd. <laughs> yeah, I can't picture. Wow, I'm just I'm I, I'm not getting it. Okay, mm. wow. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, no the uh, the effects in this thing uh, they're a lot of fun uh, and they really add to the the surreality uh, of the movie, especially all the water tank stuff which you were mentioning before. Um, the miniatures maybe don't a hundred percent work, but they work enough for me and they work enough in the context of the movie, I think. Uh, and with the with surreality in mind, I think that maybe that's why this movie works for so many other people. Um, you can kind of pick apart its flaws and it certainly has plenty. Um, you know, the, uh, the lizard men costumes absolutely fucking blow. I'd probably egg a kid, uh, who came to my door <laughs> dressed like that for Halloween. Um, but I also think that, uh, there are 
very few films quite like it uh, in looks and in attitude. Uh, I think that it has a lot of imagination that it's dying uh, to get on screen. And I think that it does so uh, fairly spectacularly. Uh, you know, whether that's entirely by design or happenstance is really up for debate. I think that Hodges said uh, that, that it was, you know, the movie was almost totally improvised. Um, so there's that. Um, and, you know, obviously this movie wouldn't be the same movie without Queen on the soundtrack. But I, I also don't think that uh, them not being on it would turn this movie into a failure uh necessarily i mean like i said earlier that's the the two things that most people take out of this movie are the are queen uh and the look of it um, yeah there's 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 the theme song but there's also like some really great like brian may queen moments throughout the movie yeah, yeah that yeah, are really yeah. kind of I, I love the music when he's uh when he's yeah. playing football with the guards oh yeah it's great there's 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 a lot of great little moments of music and there's 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 an orchestral score in here too but there is mm-hmm. uh, a lot of these i think one of the things you take away from it is the queen soundtrack not just the it theme is, song. It is, I mean, but I, I mean, but again, I don't think that I don't think I think that it, that's one of the things that makes it special. It's certainly one of the things that makes it fondly remembered. Yeah. But I don't think the movie would be would be horrible without it. No. Like you know what I'm saying? No, no, no. no. Like I'm not saying that it, it's a key to its success necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I agree. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. No, no, I agree. But uh, but that's all I got. So I you know, kick it over to you. All right. Uh, yeah, I mean, this one. Um, I think uh, Daniello Donati. I think that's the name of the person. Yes. Uh, I yeah. Think they did the, the, production. the production designer. Yeah. yeah. So, and then that person worked with Fellini quite a bit. So, you do get a bit of a Fellini vibe from some of the stuff in the movie. The costumes are garish and kind of gaunt and and crazy and. Well, it's kind of it's it's funny. Uh, that that kind of is is going back to uh, maybe that's part of it as well. Is you know because of my love for the Shaw Brothers stuff, where the guys are more flamboyant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And maybe that uh, maybe that sort of appeal is there in in this as well. I don't well, know. I mean, every time I watch this movie, I'm always kind of surprised at how cumbersome the costumes are. Yeah, and how yeah. they well, ma- they're very they're very uh, they're very pageantry esque. Yeah, right? and how they manage to pull it off because, yeah. to be honest with you, they're ridiculous. I mean, they really oh, yeah. are. They're they're absolutely out of control. I'd imagine. I know that in the history or in the trivia here on IMDb, it says Ming's costume weighed seventy pounds. Oh Jesus! I and don't if, think Frankenstein's costume weighed that much. Yeah, if it weighed seventy pounds, there's no telling what Clytus's weighed. Although you know it's clearly plastic, not real metal or anything, but. It's mm. still, it's a costume. Uh, I know the, the guys with the wings, they couldn't sit down, so they would have to stand up all day yeah. when they were on set. and so Or lay on planks. Yeah, and I know Richard O'Brien has complained over the years about this movie and, and about how awful it was shooting it. and It felt like nobody knew what they were doing. And, that, and, and in a way, that's the way the movie kind of feels. It kind of feels like this thing that was created. Um, and because of the big money made by star wars now it, it gets ramped up and to get a chance you know de laurentis is known for a guy who you know in true italian form he's riffing on something else to make a buck and he was equally successful and unsuccessful with it this one cost 20 million dollars to make which is a lot of money in 1980 1979 uh, this is a big big budget movie and it made 27 million dollars worldwide so it made its money back but a bit of a bomb in a lot of ways from what I remember as a kid. I remember people making fun of it and stuff because Star Wars gave science fiction. Star Wars and Blade Runner both gave science fiction this kind of more realistic sci-fi approach in the well, way things look used. It gave used. it more of like a, an air of legitimacy. Yeah, things look used. Things were dirty. Mm-hmm. 
things were, uh, you know, you just felt like it could exist at some point. Uh, even though Star Wars is a bit fantasy, but definitely Blade Runner definitely had that feel. But this is this is sci-fi by the way of Italian cocaine or something. <laughs> and it's and we it, all know that's the best cocaine. Yeah, and it, it's quite wonderful for that. And that's part of the thing that I always take away from it is, you know, once you if you see Flash Gordon, you never forget Flash Gordon. Like you, it's it's that pivotal of a movie in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a great film. I think it's a very influential film, though. I think it's a, I think it's a good film, um, a very solid movie. But I think it's also too long. And uh, I think, as much as I like Sam Jones and I like him as Flash Gordon, um, he does feel almost a little too bland. Even though I know that's the point. Yes. As a hero, like he's not quite as swashbuckly as I want him to be, or as interesting. Mm-hmm. But then again, I've never really thought the character of Flash Gordon was that interesting anyway. I always, even if I go back and look at the old serials that George Lucas liked, he's pretty vanilla in that too. So it's kind of the point of the piece is that he is this kind of an apple pie and ice cream yeah. and a you know, slice of cheese on the, on the pie. You know, he's, he's as American as American can get. I don't know that he'd be putting a slice of cheese on the old apple pie there, buddy. <laughs> That's getting a little, you're getting a little, uh, <laughs> a little taxi out of driver. hand there. A little taxi driver, a little Travis Bickle there. Likes a nice slice of cheese on his apple pie, um, but I, I do enjoy the slickness of the movie and the the gaudiness of the movie. It's like it's almost like going and watching a production, and and this sounds like an insult, but I don't mean it to be an insult at all. I swear, but it feels like a science fiction movie designed by drag queens, and <laughs> yeah, okay, and, and and in a good way, uh, you know, because everybody is so bombastic and huge and mm-hmm. and overacting and all those things and i love all that and well, that, you could call it operatic yeah you could like even if nick cage shows up in this movie like he's getting overshadowed by other folks you know <laughs> i mean it's just it's amazing how how they work it out and i and i, I quite enjoy all that i really do and the movie still works quite well I do as uh, yeah no I agree with you and I I, I very much agree with you about the uh, the length of this thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. um, yeah, it's too long. It definitely yeah it definitely could uh, could stand a trimming. Evidently there was a uh, conversation between De Laurentiis and uh, Sergio Leone about doing this film too, but Sergio Leone really yeah he said it wasn't faithful enough to the comic strips. Can you imagine Sergio Leone's Flash Gordon? <laughs> I would like to. Yeah, it's right up there with Fellini's as two directors yeah, right. that I could imagine. That I would love to see something, you know, it's like Jodorowsky's Dune. I would have loved to have seen Fellini's Flash Gordon and Leone's Flash Gordon. For that matter, I would have loved to have seen Nick Rogue's Flash Gordon. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a property that I think you can do this with. And I'm actually kind of surprised, honestly, in this day and age when things are kind of brought back all the time in film world and everything else, that Flash Gordon hasn't been brought back in some way, shape, yeah. or form. Now, it's yeah. obvious we've talked about it. I haven't seen the film, but you just talked about it in the opening again that Thor Ragnarok owes some debt to Flash Gordon. It's oh God, clear yeah. Watiti uh, is a fan of the film. Yep. And it is it is a surface level... I mean, it's a very basic uh, hero's journey type of story film. It's nothing fancy there. So really, everything with Flash Gordon is kind of on the surface. It's uh, yep. the way it looks, the way it's brightly lit. Again, the color red is very significant to the whole movie. Yeah. Um, well, and, and, you know, you, you were saying about... Um, about different directors having been uh, bandied about for this thing, you know, if if alternate realities do exist, 
Yeah, you would almost want to go to them just so you could find out <laughs> yeah. uh, if those things actually happen and actually yeah. watch them. That I think would be the most interesting thing about alternate realities is all yeah. the, the all the the uh, the films that uh, didn't get made that that almost got made by you know X, Y, or Z. I think yeah. would be. Uh, I think that'd be interesting. It's interesting, you know. We mentioned Leone and Fellini and, and Rogue, but evidently the Hodges was the eighth director chosen. Oh God! That finally said yes and went through with this thing. I don't know who the other ones were. I wish I would have known. Uh, I wish I would did know because you know just just Leone and Fellini alone is enough to get the juices flowing. And yeah. then you know also and you know, some other fun facts. I mean, you know, Kurt Russell at one point was up to play Flash Gordon. Um. There's another uh, actor at the time, I think. Uh, I can't remember who it was, but there was another one. I know Dennis Hopper was bandied about, not as Flash Gordon, but as Dr. Zarkov, which would have totally fit because Topol is kind of doing a kind of a Dennis Hopper riff here. He's really kind of going over the top if you think about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Every time I think of Topol, too, all I can think of is a fiddler on the roof. That's all I can think about when I see that guy. <laughs> Even in Flash Gordon the movie, where I know he's in it, and I like him in the movie because I think he's funny and he's over the top. I still think of a fiddler on the roof the whole time, <laughs> every time I see him. <laughs> and his mind wipe thing—that that even going back and seeing it again, I thought about it back in the day. It never made any sense, and it still doesn't make any sense to me. Evidently, they quote unquote empty him out, but he seems to remember everything. Yeah, well, because he he tricked them. He's uh... yeah. So it's uh, it's kind of I don't know. It just. Some of that stuff just doesn't work for me. The movie's ridiculous in those ways. But I'm not looking. When I go to a movie like this, sometimes I'm not looking for logic. I'm looking for something else. And yeah. this gives it to me in spades. It gives me the Italianness of the production, which is just bonkers. Uh, there's something about De Laurentiis' films in the 70s and the early 80s that are just, they're kind of special in their own way. Mm-hmm. Um, his, you know, His King Kong, I'm still a fan of. Oh yeah, and, and and they just have a look. Well, it's, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I'm not, I'm not, I was going to go off on a Kong tangent, but no. I'm sure at some point we'll talk about that Kong film. Um, I've always kind of wanted to talk about it on the show, so maybe someday we'll review it. Okay, um, because I've always been, I've, you know, it was a, it was a, as much as I love the '33 film, uh, the '70s film is very pivotal to my youth. It is. It is. Yeah, for that, yes, it's very important. I, I can't. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, personally to me it's very important that i have with it oh yeah no Certainly. doubt but there's something about it that personally is very important and also in yeah. true de Laurentiis form it plays up the sexuality again and yes again these these films you know it, 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 being a child of the 70s it's kind of hard to come out of it and not i don't know be some kind of i'm not in a bad way but some type of deviant or some type of open-minded <laughs> to sexual kind of perversity uh, because a lot of this stuff was there in these films. Yeah. yeah and like yeah. I said, it's here in this one. I mean, uh, Ming meets his, uh, you know, his end in this film movie in some ways, very sexually. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything is just so sexual and I, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for that. Although I got to say that if, uh, I was watching it with my son, I'd, I'd have a hard lot to explain because I think kids nowadays pick up a metaphor a lot quicker than we did when we were young. I think when we were young, we, it was kind of, you know, I don't think the subliminal messaging was, we didn't we didn't catch on to it as much. I think nowadays, for whatever well, we reason, we weren't as exposed to it. Yeah, I think nowadays kids pick it up a lot quicker than they used to, and it's one of those old man things to say, but I just feel like that. Because again, I, I told you, you know, when me and my son went and saw the Last Jedi, was it the Last Jedi? Is that the middle film of the of the third trilogy? Uh, 
Yes. And and the whole time they're having that that first moment when Ray and Adam Driver's character are talking to each other through what can only be described as uh, Star Wars Skype, <laughs> uh, which is something I despise throughout the whole series, by the way. I hate that they <laughs> communicate with each other that way. Why don't you just give me the ghostly image or something, you know? Mm-hmm. I hate that they can quote unquote see each I, I anyway, I'm gonna get off I'm gonna get off on that. Because <laughs> same as you with the Kong thing, that we could go on for hours about that. I hate that. Oh yeah, yeah. But I really despise it in Last Jedi because for whatever reason they decided to use Kylo Ren shirtless and my son the whole time was like, Why is he why is he not wearing a shirt? I brought this up before. Why is he not wearing a shirt? Why do I have to see his nipples? I'm like, I have no idea why you have to see his nipples. It's making me uncomfortable talking about this with you. <laughs> you know why? Is it there for the females? Great. I know some females love Adam Driver as Kylo Ren. They love Adam Driver in general. That's great. That's fantastic. But keep your nipples out of my Star Wars movie, man. I don't yeah, want right? to see. I want to see them driver nipples. Fucking a. <laughs> yeah, anyway, it's like putting nipples on the bat suit, man. It's uncalled for. <laughs> and yes, I'm anti-nipple bat suit. Yes, I'm on that camp. What? <laughs> I'm anti-nipple. Don't tell Joel. Uh, I mean, I, I don't get me wrong. I like the suit in the third film. The fourth film, I don't like the suit at all. Oh, dude, it's horrible. No, but the third film, I do like the suit. Val Kilmer looks good in the suit. Anyway, yeah. uh, nipples and all. Um, let's see here. Yeah, I don't really have a lot to add for the movie. I think Flash, you know, he's a great modest hero. He wears his own name on his own shirt. Yeah. I mean, he does, <laughs> you, know, it, it, you know, it is what it as is. As you do. Yeah, as you do. But I find it kind of interesting that he's a sports star. He kind of drives himself to the airport. Uh, it's interesting to me. Um, the this the I think this movie's become a cult movie because it's kind of so ridiculous. Yeah. And yeah. again, God bless it for that. I, I I don't think I don't think it has. I think if they played it serious or they played it straight, if they tried to go the Star Wars route, I think this movie would have died on the vine completely. I think the only reason why it's remembered is because it's so B-movie and over the top. Mm-hmm. And I think that that plays to its benefit. And and that's why, you know, I'll say that it reminds, it is the GGTMC equivalent of a Star Wars movie. It's like, uh, you know, the things we love, the gaudiness, the ridiculous costumes, uh, breast and bare chest. And uh, in the case of Brian Blessed, a lot of ham bone. A lot of, I mean, he's he's all but wearing bikini underwear. Oh, and, yeah. I mean, you're seeing all of Blessed in a lot of ways, and I don't know if that's a good thing. And uh, But, you know, nice hairy hams he's got hanging out there. It's just, it's wonderful for all those reasons. And God bless it that it exists and that it keeps coming out. I watched this on the Arrow 4K. It looks pretty amazing. It's not the most amazing 4K I've seen. Uh, I have to say, so far, the most amazing 4Ks I've seen have pretty much been uh, The Shining and Casino is amazing. Hmm. Um, there's a couple others, but yeah, Casino really kind of blew me away. But um, this one does look great. Um, maybe not perfect, but it's amazing what HD, uh, and, and, and I'll, I'll say 4K, but I, it doesn't necessarily have to be 4K. Sometimes Blu-ray can do this as well. It just depends on the print and how much love they put into it. But man, some of these films to go back and look at them, I mean, they look like they look like new films, mm-hmm. and it's unbelievable to me that uh, you know. I, I can tell you this about the 4K restoration or the high definition restoration that Hodges they had to go back and take the wires out because the definition was so defined 
that uh, you could see the wires clearly. Now, you can still, I don't know if you can see them or not. I didn't really look closely, but you could always kind of see them if you knew what to look for. But that's one of the differences between HD and regular film. You know, you can get away with a lot of stuff with regular film, you know, hide some of your tricks. With HD, it's really hard to do that. So it's just amazing how these movies look. Jaws, this, uh, The Shining. Again, some of the other films I talked about, Unforgiven. I mean, it's just, it just blows my mind. And uh, I wish all films looked as good as these films do. <laughs> I wish yeah, every film yeah. came out in its purest form. But uh, there is something also to be said, though, for watching a, you know, a muddy print of uh, who knows what, right? I mean, we watch muddy prints of stuff all the time. So mm-hmm. uh, to hell with the devil or whatever. Well, there's a good example. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no uh, yeah the uh, the the it's the same uh, it's the same thing as well again we go back to comic books uh, there's a, there's a certain joy in uh, reading an actual issue from 1970 whatever mm-hmm. uh, and the smell and the look of the print and the yellowing of the paper and the feel of the paper uh, all that stuff yeah yeah the grit of it and all that all of that stuff that very uh, sensual uh, sort of um, tactility. Um, and then, that that you get from a grotty print that you're not going to get from something that's slicker. Yeah, yeah. And then you know, like I said, reading, go back and reading the Steve Ditko, Stan Lee, Amazing Spider-Man's, which I don't own any of those unless they're in reprint nature. Um, you know, having this pristine panel, and I mean mm-hmm. fucking pristine uh, panels that I'm looking at that will kind of blow your mind, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of like you know, there's no way I would see those in real life because paper ages. And there's no way they would be that ever be that pristine unless it was airtight yep. and the comic had never been thumbed through yep. ever. There's just no way that it could ever be that way. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, everybody in this film, I think everybody in this film is bringing their A overacting game, and I love it. I think the only one that feels out of place in a weird way is Sam Jones, but again, I think he's meant to, and so I don't think that's any fault of his own. Uh, it is a shame that he's come to – I know I've seen some documentaries about Sam Jones um, – over the years, and he's come to terms with the fact that he really kind of flubbed this, the uh, Flash Gordon thing up a little bit, and he's come to terms with you know being Flash Gordon because you know he's had a movie career. Sam Jones, he's he's done a lot of stuff over the years, uh, but mm-hmm. he, he's you know done one of those performances where he will always be remembered as being Flash Gordon. And uh, you know it is what it is, and you either come to terms with that, you know, even though it was a dark time for him, or you don't come to terms with it and you just, you know, let it eat you alive. And I think he's finally come to terms with the fact that this is what he's always going to be known as. He's always going to be flash Gordon. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, Especially with the, the whole Ted thing. Yep. Yeah, and Ted brought it back. Yeah. So I think that's the way it is. And it, it again, this, these movies, these, these kind of lower, well, I, I can't say low budget ripoffs because this is not, this is a big budget ripoff. Yeah, I'm pretty sure <laughs> this I'm pre- is not Star Crash. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Star Wars did not cost twenty million to make. I might be wrong about that. I feel like it might have been fourteen to fifteen million, and I, I remember that might have been too much at the time. And uh, people were talking about what a huge gamble it was. But uh, I'm going to look that up now while you get into Maker Breaks or MVTs. Uh, awesome possum. So uh, Maker Break, uh, yeah, you nailed it before. I'm going with the would be scene. Um, it's something that uh, stuck with me from the very first time that I saw this, and I still find it incredibly nail-biting as well as scintillating. Uh, and plus, it uh, it reinforces what makes uh, the character of Flash so great to begin with. Um, MVT? $11 million, $11 million is how much Star Wars cost to make. 
see there you go so dealer at this uh in three years later uh blue eight million more dollars <laughs> yeah. on this thing 11 million dollars original run made 775 million dollars fucking hey yeah, that is the reason why hollywood makes those kinds of movies <laughs> yeah pretty much i mean you can't um, you, you can't argue against that if you're if you're in the business of making money you can't argue against it no no you can't uh, I mean, well, I mean, you could, but well, you can. Artist- anybody, you're not going to convince anybody who's yeah. going to finance you. Artistically, you can make arguments, but sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not not dollars and cents, you can't. No. Um, so MVT, uh, I am going to go with uh, the aesthetics of the thing. Uh, this thing is just—it's an oversaturated feast for the eyes, and every frame I think has something great to look at in it. Um, and score, ha, uh. Yeah, fuck it. I'm going eight out of ten. Nice uh, on this one. So nice. Yeah, Flash right. Gordon. He's he's saved every one of us. For every one of us. Stand ah. Yeah. And get the quiet part. Just a man <laughs> with a man's courage. You know, <laughs> yeah. nothing but a man. <laughs> That's right. Never fail. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Anyway, he's rolling the fuck over in his yeah, grave. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. He's like, oh, you fucking idiots. Um, Bastards. Yeah, we're pretty much on, we're right down the road on this one, exactly the same. I mean, it's it's okay, almost comical. Cool. My favorite scene is also the stump scene. <laughs> uh, my MVT is also the production design, which you talked about the aesthetic or the look of it, but it may as well just yep. be the production design. Yep. And my, yeah, score, yeah, yeah. my score is an 8 out of 10. Nice. Uh, I mean, we couldn't be more universal on one. And, I, and again, I think the I think our eight out of tens have a lot to do. They have somewhat to do with nostalgia and Absolutely. what the film is going for and how it succeeds at that. Um, I would say the story itself is is it's no great shakes, but it's not also no. it's but not it trying pretend to be. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't pretend to be anything more than what it is. And I think we we often talk about, about this on the show, right? I mean, sometimes genres should just be genre. Yes, absolutely. And this is a great example of that. The you know mm-hmm. this kind of grabs all that genre goodiness and kind of just crams it right down your throat. And you're just sick of it by the time you're done. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> in a good way. In a good way. But not of Ornella Muti. No. Oh my God, no. <laughs> Even today, look at a picture of her now. Mm-hmm. She is still amazing. <laughs> She's for every one of us. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> All right. Anyway, uh, that's the big show. Let's get into what we'll be talking about next week. Todd, what you got? I got a little movie out of Mexico uh, called Hasta el Viento Tiene Miedo, uh, a.k.a. Even the Wind is Afraid. Nice. Uh, directed by one Carlos Enrique Taboada. Taboada. Nice. Taboada. Yeah, this was a this was a random select uh, first time watch for me. Yeah. So. It's on Tubi, yeah? Uh, I do believe it is. Yeah, yes. Where it was, and I don't know if it is anymore. But I'm pretty sure that it is. I yeah, <laughs> I, it was when I picked it up. Yeah, it that yeah, way. Yeah. Um. All right. Uh. And I am picking one of that kind of wanted to talk about for a long time, but uh, it it's just it's just one that I think warrants a lot of conversation, and it's fun to talk about. And that is uh, my name is nobody from 1973, uh, directed by Tonino Valeri, uh, and possibly. And I will say, quite possibly, Ghost directed a little bit by Sergio Leone. Possibly. <laughs> he was certainly there. Let's put it that way. Uh, there is a presence. <laughs> uh, 
Um, but uh, it's kind of a fun one to talk about, and it's always good to get uh, Terrence Hill and Henry Fonda back on the show. Yeah, so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And here we go. We get to get them, and, and of course, I love westerns. And uh, anytime I can get a western on the show, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go there. Usually a western or a samurai film. That's usually my favorite thing. And oddly, I got a couple of those coming up. <laughs> How about that? All right, so that is it. Even the Wind is Afraid, which we believe is still on Tubi. We don't know for sure. Uh, I only say that because there's been a couple times where I've went to Tubi. We've, we've talked about a movie, and I went to Tubi, and it's gone. Or yeah, I've went yeah. to YouTube, and it's gone. And uh, and so, you know, you guys might have to find it another way if you have to. But uh, And then uh, My Name is Nobody. It, it's out there in a lot of different ways. You can probably find it pretty much anywhere, which I think it is on Tubi, as a matter of fact. Uh, I believe that one is, yeah. Yeah, and Amazon Prime as well, I believe. So be fun to talk about. All right. Mm-hmm. I don't really have anything else. Uh, with that, I'll say mind your manners, watch your serial killer documentaries, and adios. Adios. Flush. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com and you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com Thank you.